Well, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. With you, as always, I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and I am joined by... Catherine! My sister, and we are here to talk about another cinematic failure, um, but one that rides that line very closely, because this film, at least by some, is beloved, but by others, not so much. Uh, and definitely not at the box office. So that film is Alex Proyas's follow-up to his now immortal film, The Crow, 1998's Dark City. Story by Alex Proyas, co-written by uh, Lim Dobbs, and frequent genre contributor David S. Goyer, who apparently got this job because Proyas read his script for Blade. Uh, which was not yet produced. So um, Dark City is uh, an incredible film, uh, an early um, produced in Australia film. This was one of the first films made at Fox Studios Australia and uh, directed by someone that unfortunately has uh, produced a fair share of failures in his yeah. career. Yeah. Uh, but some incredible things at the same time. Uh, of course, Alex Proyas. But before we delve in, um, been watching anything? I have been watching a sad amount of YouTube this week. <clears throat> I've been focusing my efforts on the Hydraulic Press channel, which is adorable and wonderful. If you like to see adorable Finnish people smash things with a hydraulic press, you should watch it. <laughs> I don't see how you couldn't enjoy that. Very, very cool. ASMR, but without the... Without M? the creepy people. Yeah, without the creepiness, for sure. I'm uh, sorry, more, ASMR more people. I'm sorry. It's okay. ASMR people understand. <laughs> um, yeah, very cool. Um, I haven't had a, a bunch of time this week, uh, apart from reviewing a couple of films for, for upcoming episodes. Uh, a lot of YouTube myself. Um, really delving into the long-form video game essays. Um, many of them are terrible, but... They're about video games I like, so meh, it's a decent trade-off. As someone who um, writes long-form video game essays, I, I get it. I yeah, get it. yeah. I mean, like I said, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, also got a chance to uh, watch the first episode of Lovecraft Country, Sundown, um, which was, was pretty excellent. Um, I've had the book Lovecraft Country on my shelf for longer than i should admit uh without reading it um it's it's just been in the queue and i haven't made it to it yet so i decided to check out the show and uh pretty much all of the same things that attracted me to the book uh exist in the show and and amplified in some really great ways i think the first episode is is really fantastic i, I think the coolest thing about it uh i listened to a little bit of the uh, hbo weekly podcast similar to what they did with Watchmen they're doing this for Lovecraft Country as well and and one of the things they pointed out that I, I think really grabbed me and hooked me about the episode is that it really is a it is a show about horror but the sort of nature of that horror is slowly revealed in that you know the Lovecraft stuff the things that we call horror are really at least in this first episode secondary to the horrors of you know late 1950s America and and the the treatment 
of black Americans in, in that oppressive system. Um, and, and I think it's display of that and it's rendering of that is extremely good, very powerful. Uh, there's some very tense moments at the end and, uh, you know, before the monsters ever show up, there's a, a, a great amount of tension. And I think it's just building a good central cast. This episode feels like it's doing the, you know, unfortunately necessary groundwork for a series like this to sort of establish a whole bunch of characters that are going to become important. And to do so, you know, with some amount of speed, but you do need to care about these people. If anything, that's the most exciting part of it is that they they already have demonstrated that they understand that if you want to craft a horrifying narrative, you need to care for the people at the center of it, right? No one is expendable. And I, I think that that, uh, that really comes through. And I'm excited to see where it goes next. You know, it's got a fairly standard um, central mystery, you know, trying to find the lost parent, you know, the lost parent mystery that uh, is at the heart of many horror narratives. Um, and and I think that uh, it's going to be a good driving force to, to unite all of these disparate elements that they've introduced. But shot beautifully, the you know, period pieces are always complicated, especially in television. And they really nail it. Like, I don't know how, you know, it's one of those things you watch... You know, if you watch one of the 1950s episodes of Star Trek, right, you see the same five cars, you know, you see the same dude in the background with the, the black and white shirt, you know, because production budgets are always restrained by that kind of thing. And, you know, this, you don't get any of that. It, it's it's very, very well done, as, as we would expect from, you know, premium television at this point, I guess. But uh, I was impressed. It looks really good. It's shot nicely. Good special effects, which is also going to be important moving forward. But yeah, it was really cool. I highly awesome. recommend it. Yeah, it's very nice. I'm, I'm excited. And when I think that's, uh, you know, my wife, who is not a horror aficionado, I mean, she she watches horror with me. She enjoys it uh, from time to time, you know, but she's very much, you know, like she'll watch it, and, you know, the new Andy Machete ones and, and be like, oh, that was okay. You know, that was pretty cool, you know. Um, but you know she's not gonna watch color out of space with me she's not gonna watch, <laughs> she's not gonna watch mandy right i mean like if i really insist i'm like no you need to watch mandy she'll do it but at the end of the day i know that she's not really yeah, she'll it. resent that is, for it <laughs> yeah and that's fine but this i think she could really get into i think the character drama at its core is is solid enough that i think she could really you know, be propelled through it despite the the other parts of it that she may not enjoy that much. So I'm excited about that. I think it's going to be pretty cool. Uh, all right. Well, if that's it, let's let's dive right in. Um, I'm excited to talk about this movie. I love talking about Alex Proyas Me movies. Me too. There, there's something else, man. Um, whether it ends up being good or not, you know when Alex Preuss makes a movie you're in for some kind of ride. It's going to be interesting. Um, his most recent film, uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with his his uh, body of work, uh, we'll kind of work backwards real quick. Uh, so Preuss, his most recent film was, uh, was it 2019, I think, that's, uh, or 2018. No, it's older than that, 2016. Yeah. Uh, Gods of Egypt, right? It's the mm -hmm. uh, Game of Thrones guy and Gerard Ooh. Butler as Egyptian gods. It's Jimmy uh, Whispers, right? Uh, 
I don't. I didn't. I don't. I haven't uh, watched Nicola. Yeah, it's it's Nicolas Coster. So I only have that. I, bad I know his name. Video. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I know his name, but uh, you know, it's it's more fun to call him that Game of Thrones guy. But uh, yes, it is the two of them. Gerard Butler plays Set, the Egyptian god of the dead, uh, which not my first casting choice, but. What do I know? Uh, So Gods of Egypt came out. It was a disaster. Um, Tremendous failure. Before that, he did Knowing, the 2009 (laughs) um, Open the Time Capsule Prophecy movie starring Nicolas Cage. That Uh, was a ride. Oh, yeah. I don't don't hate Knowing. I think the last 20 minutes of that movie are so ludicrous that they strain even the even the the modicum of credulity that I had left at that movie. It was a very silly It's just like, (laughs) what? Um, So that one was interesting. Strong opening. uh, You know, it's made well, but, uh, you know, knowing was was rough. I don't understand. His music, his music, oh gosh. His movies look so good. Very good. They always look Especially this one. Beautiful and polished Mm -hmm. and... All of this care and attention went into creating them, and yet they're not good movies most of the time. Yeah, uh, it's it's for some reason, and and as we work backwards here, we'll we'll see this because the next film before knowing he's only Bryce has only made a few movies in his career. He's been in the he's been in the the feature film business since the mid '90s, early '90s, really. Um, but he has only produced six films. Which is is low for a modern director. Um, you know, it's it's fine. A lot of directors take a tremendous amount of time developing their projects, but Proyas was hot in the '90s uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons, and unfortunately, his career has not seemed to go in in a super positive direction. And that and the turning point seems to have been uh, 2004's iRobot. Yeah. Um, a long gestating project, a project that many directors had taken a swing at and never made it past the pre-production phase. Uh, he finally got Isamov, uh, Isaac Asimov's iRobot off the ground as a Will Smith action vehicle. <sighs> um, so this one feels a little bit work for hire. That's the way iRobot always felt to me. It felt to me like the studio needed someone who had some visual panache because of a tremendous amount of CG. And they saw the crow and they thought robots. And, and sure let's yes, we'll, we'll say that that's what happened. Cause <laughs> that makes more sense than probably what did happen. Um, so he was brought in for iRobot. Uh, from what I remember from the production of that film, it was tremendously rocky. It was over budget. Uh, if not over budget, it, it was it was more than they wanted to spend. Will Smith was very hot at the time, and and had many demands and things that he wanted as an actor in order to be involved, that uh, may have caused him to clash with Proyas at times. So it, it was a troubled production, and and the final result was troubled as well, to say the least. Um, you know, I don't hate iRobot. I think I've got a DVD of it laying around somewhere. It, I, I think Alan Tudyk's performance as the robot is actually really Sorry, excellent. Yeah. And a, a good early sort of all CG character, uh, especially a performance captured CG character. You know, this was post Jar Jar Binks. And, <laughs> and lots of people were chasing the all digital character 
you know, model well as post Lord of the Rings as well. So uh, everybody was running at that, and and Tudic was tapped to to play the performance capture of the robot, and and his performance is really good. The rest of the film is is forgettable mediocre and forgettable. Yeah. Um, I have a I have a long and weird relationship with Alex Proyas. I have a quote from the quote from the crow tattooed on my arm. Um, mm-hmm. and yet I hated iRobot so much because mm-hmm. I am a huge fan of Isaac Asimov and sure. I was so excited. I thought, oh my goodness, this incredible director who made these two amazing films that I absolutely love is going to make another film. How, and it's based on a, a book I love. How could I not love this film? Right. And I did not love it. <laughs> Not so much. I, I actually think I walked out of, I, I saw it again. I, I gave it a fair shake. I saw it once. And then I saw it a second time because I, I had to understand what happened. Sure. Yeah. And Some and I, I lost I lost my will halfway through and I had to leave. So it was just, it was so boring. Yeah. It's, it's a rough, it's a rough film to watch um, for ostensibly being an action film. It, it doesn't really tick any of the boxes that would generally go along with that um so let's get to what generally i I think is considered his best period of film uh so the 2002 uh we actually mentioned uh in our speed racer episode uh he made a very small film Uh, i remember hunting this down Uh, i was such a huge fan of both the crow and dark city you know i was just ravenous for anything proyas and so i saw that he was making this movie about a garage band in Australia, and I was like, oh, well, that's kind of different, but I'm very interested to see it. So we grabbed a copy of it from a a video store that always had, you know, weird stuff, you know, less mainstream stuff around. And uh, and I enjoyed it. It's really a very small film. Um, It's shot very well, however, and and it's tremendously well designed. Uh, That was called Garage Days in 2002. Uh, It's it's very, it's it's hard to come by now, uh, at least if you're just sort of fumbling around, it's not a film that's remembered. But really, his the two films that he's most known for were his his 90s output. So in 1993, he re, or I guess really 94, um, in uh, 94 he released The Crow, um, which is had a become, perfect film. <laughs> it's it's very close. It, this is. Really riding on the coattails of Batman 89 is where the crow came from. People were ravenously looking for sort of dark and moody comic book projects to produce. And uh, someone somewhere stumbled across uh, James O'Barr's The Crow, which was a very dark, very violent uh, book famously written uh, by O'Barr as he was struggling through uh, the death of his uh, partner at uh, the hands of a drunk driver. And was, was struggling with the realities of that, and what could he do, and how could he how could he have changed it? And so he crafted this character called the Crow, and Proyas was uh, chosen to adapt it, based mostly on music video work that he had done, but he had also done a small independent feature that was also science fiction, just like a three character drama, a little bit sci fi, set in the desert. Again, nearly impossible to find at this point. Uh, I've only seen little fragments of it. But so he gets the crow. Um, the crow is immaculately designed. It's brilliantly shot by at that point by a very young Polish cinematographer named Darius Wolski, who has now gone on to be one of the finest cinematographers in Hollywood. 
Um, now he works almost exclusively with Ridley Scott. He's he, we we talk about Prometheus on this every time. Uh, but he shot Prometheus, and the one mm-hmm. thing that you can universally say about Prometheus is that film's effing gorgeous. Yeah. Um, it is gloriously shot. That's Some how that it gets you. <laughs> exactly. That's how Scott worms his way in. Uh, but he also shot Alien Covenant, which too is a very beautiful film. He shot The Martian, which I think is a probably one of Ridley Scott's best recent films, um, mostly driven by a great script by Drew Goddard, um, which I think, for me, I think Scott needs a solid script to anchor his work. He's a fine director when he gives a shit, which is rare. But when he has a great script to work from, uh, just the nature of the man's sort of machine-like pre-production where he sort of plans everything in advance produces good work. And Wolski and he get along well. Uh, very famously, Wolski also uh, worked with Gore Verbinski uh, on mm-hmm. all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And and those two gloriously shot beautiful mm-hmm. films. They're, and they so, capture everything about vintage live-action Disney that I ever wanted. And they make absolutely. it better. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an it's an update to a very classic style that now I mean, as as we've mentioned before, I think became the de facto shooting approach to all of the big franchise cinema work that Disney does, including the Marvel franchises. I, I think that Wolski has, has probably done more to contribute to that style, that Disney House style that we now see. Um, and then maybe Trent Opelok in there too, um, the South African guy that works with Neil Blomkamp all the time. Mm-hmm. I think really you take Wolski and then you take um, Opelok, who is very famously introduced the, the, the low cranking in action sequences into the Marvel films, which is now pretty much standard. Film everything at 22, should run it back at 24, makes it feel faster. Yeah. Um, but in any case, Wolski, this is one of his earliest pieces of work, both The Crow and the film that we're going to focus on, Dark City. And they're glorious. Uh, there's a ton of practical effects work, lots of model building, um, some early CG face replacements, uh, which was very new at the time. Uh, because when The Crow was coming out, right before the film hit, it became known uh, that Brandon Lee, who was the star of The Crow, uh, and very famously the son of Bruce Lee, martial arts master extraordinaire, uh, was killed in an onset accident. Uh, basically, a dummy round was uh, chambered and and caught in the cha- they were they were shooting them, and the, the dummy round, a fragment of it, was caught in the chamber and fired. And, uh, and shot him, and unbeknownst to him, he went home that day, didn't realize that he'd been shot, and, and uh, had a, a cascade of, of problems that eventually resulted in his death. So The Crow was infamous before it ever came out, because uh, it had an on, you know, basically an onset death uh, of one of its leads, which is, it's, it's the disaster scenario for a film. Um, I guess one of the more recent uh, examples of something like this with was with a stunt performer on the last Resident Evil movie. Uh, she was doing a motorcycle stunt, and one of the camera booms was basically programmed to go into the wrong position, and she hit it as she was passing at extremely high speeds, mm. um, and it, it tore her arm off. Uh, and and basically, you know, her her stunt career is is over. 
And so, uh, you know, those kinds of things, you, you never want to hear about them on film sets, you know. And, and so The Crow was infamous for that. I think it got a lot of attention. Um, this was also released at what I would consider the height of, of what came to be known as the goth movement, right? You know, Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails. I, um, it, I sit here now dressed entirely in black and nodding <laughs> along with my thick uh-huh. eyeliner. Yeah. Like that. This is where I was born. <laughs> it, it was it was an incredible mashup. You know, Proyas came from music videos, uh, which I think is evident in, in a lot of his work. There's an incredible sense of timing and rhythm to his stuff, whether there's music or not. And uh, you know, The Crow had an incredible soundtrack that is still an incredible soundtrack with mm. uh, a really great Joy Division cover by Nine Inch Nails, yeah. and um, you know, just it was it was the perfect storm of early '90s grunge alternative awesome uh in in so many packages uh first time i'd ever seen michael wincott if you don't know who that is he's the the gravelly voiced guy Uh, if you hear his voice you're like oh yeah that guy um uh it's a it is a a near perfect film it's brilliantly shot brilliantly put together and uh and a a glorious movie so his follow-up to the crow this this it was not a an incredible success Right. It did not no, make it, it found its success, I guess. Right. It, it was it was a middling box office success. It did better than anybody expected. But it really blew up on VHS and then eventually DVD. And it you was know, one it, of those films that was kind of a, a big moment for young people because this very young person who was you know, tragically killed became a sort of icon. Um, a pop culture icon because of the film. Uh, and like I said, I have a quote from the quote, crow tattooed on my arm. Yeah, I think there was a, a, a real sense of loss at Brandon Lee because he truly is excellent in that film. Um, it's a difficult character to play who has to have, you know, has to be both this violent psychopathic murderer, but also kind of funny and also sort of sad and relatable. And, and he, he pulls it off incredibly. And, and Proyas is certainly a, a huge part of helping that performance work as well as it does. And so there was a lot of tragedy tied to it, uh, again, for, you know, this is the era of, of South Park, where they've just got, like, those four kids that sit behind the school and smoke <laughs> and listen to The Cure. And, and you know, it's kind of like, yeah, man, like, we feel things. You know, like, it's... You know, South Park was making fun of this movement of, of you know young Americans who were disaffected and disenfranchised. I feel attacked. <laughs> and the I know, exactly. And the crow just seized upon all of those things and made them feel real and legitimate and honest and gave a voice to those uh, those feelings and emotions. And and Preuss was behind that. And uh, and that film, you know, we may talk about it on this podcast, but it is. It, it was not a failure in any form. No. So, um, but that's really still in many ways, Proyas's greatest and universal success. However, this film stands very close to it. So four years later, after the success of the crow, um, Proyas makes dark city. Uh, this is an original story by Alex Proyas. So the core idea of it is his own. Um, but it, it was developed with a few other people, right? As I said, Lim Dobbs, who had worked with Proyas on some other things, um, probably sort of brought in from, uh, the studio 
a lot of the development for this was done in London. That's where they were kind of doing casting and stuff. And that's probably where they hooked up. And then um, eventually David S. Goyer was brought in to, to sort of serve as the closer. And at this point in his career, David S. Goyer is, is still basically an unknown. Um, as I said, the, his script for Blade was circulating around this time as they were looking for directors. This was before Stephen Norrington was attached. And, you know, I don't know about you, but the the original script for Blade, like the original Blade in general, is just a freaking great movie. Yeah. Um, I love the first Blade, and it does not get the credit it deserves for, you know, really sort of kicking off the Marvel superhero universe. And then, you know, very famously, Goyer now has been heavily involved in the Zack Snyder-verse, for good or for bad. Um, you know, he assisted on the first script of the Nolan era, Batman Begins, uh, and and had a story credit on The Dark Knight, but that was probably just part of that like development of the franchise more than anything, because uh, the Nolan brothers had taken over writing duties at that point. But I mean, this is a guy who's written... Uh, he also wrote uh, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> which I kind of love. Um, I love Ghost Rider. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Spirit of Vengeance especially, because it's just so crazy. That's the one where uh, Ghost Rider like, turns on an excavator. It's, he, like, it is insane. Drives a demon excavator around a quarry for a while. And it's I had great. so much fun watching that movie. Yeah, it's just fun, you know, so... Uh, so Goyer's been around for a while at this time. He had done a, a few things, uh, but he came to Proyas, or Proyas became aware of him, not only for the Blade thing, but because Goyer was also tapped to write the sequel to The Crow, The Crow City of Angels, uh, which is a lesser film in many ways. Like I, I was so into The Crow at the time. I still went and saw it. I, I still enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, we talked a little bit um, you know, about the... The 2000s Everything's Brown with Blade mm-hmm. 2. Crow City of Angels may very well be the film that kicked that off because that movie is brown. Everything is brown. Uh, it's it's the brownest brown that you ever browned. And uh, it, it's, it's not bad, uh, but it is certainly nothing compared to the original Crow. Uh, although there are some visuals in it that I think sort of stand on its own. So that brings us to Dark City. So the story by Proyas was really built around the the idea of noir, right? So the, the noir genre of the, the detective, the gumshoe, quite literally, un, you know, solving a mystery was was what kind of draw him drew him to the table. He wanted to tell a story like that. And so from what I understand, the William Hurt character, Bumstead was originally his main character, right? That he we were going to follow this detective who became, who was trying to unravel this case, but the more he unraveled the case, the less things made sense, right? The world just sort of fractured into Very more, noir. more pieces. Yeah, it's a, a common sort of noir piece. You've got the, the detective at the center who feels like he understands the world and what's going on, but then as he continues to delve into this new mystery, everything gets sort of unwritten you know really it's it's every horror story every single one like 
Perot confronts new mystery, unravels the nature of his being as he's forced to confront his own morality. Says a few right? sassy things. Yeah, a lot of sassiness and mustache twirling, and you're, and you're good. Million seller. But so he started there, realized that that probably wasn't going to be enough. Other writers came in and sort of fleshed out the, the remainder of the story. You know, so the, the core summary of Dark City, if we want to, you know, try to bring this down, is that a, a man awakens in a bathtub in a hotel in the middle of the night with no memory of who he is, a dead woman in his hotel room, and he's being chased by a group of shadowy, dangerous-looking characters, and he seems to have a strange ability to change the world, right? And so... As he is pursued, he uncovers an incredible mystery that sort of reveals the very core of, of who he is and, and his role in this place. And so it's a, a really sort of classic no-memory story, right? There's a lot of that going on here, just a guy trying to figure out who he is and what's going on in the world around him when he has no context for it. You know, it's, it's classic noir stuff. And it is shot very much like a noir. Uh, this film was often in the reviews accused of being too dark and too difficult to understand because of its visuals, which to me just seems like somebody who doesn't understand what the film is attempting to do. But I guess we'll, tell you. we'll get there. So Dark City releases in 1998 and does not set the world on fire, but it does get a pretty decent critical response. Um, most notably from Roger Ebert. Yes. Your favorite critic and mine. Yep. Uh, Ebert loved Dark City. He adored this film. Uh, it is one of, I think, two films, maybe three, that Ebert actually recorded a custom commentary track for. What an uh, honor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh, dude. Can you imagine? Um, it's available on the director's cut, uh, Blu-ray now you can still listen to it. I think it was slightly expanded when the director's cut scenes were added back in. They had Ebert come back and record a few more things. Um, the film, the version of the film that I, I think we're going to focus on tonight is the theatrical version. The director's cut makes a, a few notable changes, but nothing too substantial really just adds more context, a lot more, uh, establishing shots and, Things like that. Uh, most notably, it takes away the opening narration, which we will get to. Um, but so the critic reaction to this, uh, it sits at about a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes, but that's only with 80-ish reviews. This was not a heavily reviewed film at the time. And uh, there certainly haven't been many of those people going back and reviewing you know, after the fact, although there, ha there have been a few on Rotten Tomatoes. The audience score with 150,000... 153,000 user ratings, 85%. So the audience score, very nice. Um, and I think that that's... Well, there's a review down here that sort of expresses my feelings on that, so we'll get there. Uh, and the Metacritic score is a little bit lower. It's about 66% on Metacritic. So a good critical response, not a perfect critical response. So a couple of the negatives, some ones that... Uh, a couple of reviews that had not-so-nice things to say. Uh, we have Liam Lacey from The Globe and Mail. An almost really good movie lies somewhere in the stylish junkyard of Alex Proyas's Dark City. 
that's right. The stylish junkyard. That's what I liked about that one. Uh, because even the negative reviews of this could not deny the incredible visuals and production design on display in this movie. Um, it looks like nothing else, uh, even to this day. It's really nothing else that looks like it. And and it's it's really a great piece of evidence for all of the things that can go right when you have a wonderful world to play in as a filmmaker. Um, Sean Means from Film.com. Dark City has all the gothic imagery and plot incoherence of a Tim Burton movie without Burton's mad scientist merriment, which is uh-huh. possibly the... <laughs> Which is possibly the last review that spoke positively about Tim Burton that I've ever read. <laughs> uh, because this was, the, this was you know, right around the late 90s, so Tim Burton was still sort of in favor. Uh, not, not Tim Burton, you know, Alice Through the Looking Glass era. But so, um, you know, this one was another pretty common refrain. The only other film director that really treads in this visual territory, heavy, dark, gothic strange angles you know uh, really direct really specific lighting is tim burton right tim burton especially at this time nobody else was really doing stuff like this we've got more people now that play in that sandbox but to compare this to a tim burton film is is just, it's a bad idea because mm. tim burton has never done anything quite like this uh, never really had a, a movie that dealt with this many ideas and interesting ideas as Dark City does. Because Dark City is one of those uh, science fiction films that deals with a lot of really big questions and actually does so fairly competently, which is a struggle, especially in film. Uh, so another negative, uh, this is one of those movies that's more concerned with set design motivation than anything that's going on inside the characters' heads. Uh, so again, another fairly common refrain, character work bad, production design good. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think this actually, this film actually does a lot with its characters. Uh, it does not have a ton of them, but they certainly serve very important functions. And I think, I think they're always understandable. Like, I don't think anybody does anything in this movie that makes you cock your head to the side and go like, why'd they do that? Right. And I think that that's a, a good thing. So some, some more middling reviews here. I had to pull a couple. Um, it's a little short on coherence and long on comic book sensationalism. Dig the hokey climactic battle of the minds between the hero and the cadaverous Mr. Big, <laughs> but there's no denying the nightmarish pull of the film's aesthetic. And that's Ty Burr from Entertainment Weekly. Um, so this one addressing not something that was commonly talked about here, because in 1998, comic book movies were not a thing. Right, we're in, we're even two years away from X Men at this point, which is generally considered well, the Matrix the hasn't start even come out yet. No, no, we're even a year before the Matrix. I think um, the Matrix is what made all of this this stuff possible for people to take these kinds of films seriously. For sure, and, and happened. I remember reading an an uh, article with Nolan about Inception, where Nolan said that he was fascinated by that time in filmmaking that was dealing with the, this question of what is real. And he specifically name dropped the matrix dark city and the 13th floor, which you know pretty much all jive in that world. And um, 
you know, Dark City and The Matrix are very closely connected projects. Uh, Dark City was one of the earliest films shot at uh, Fox Studios Sydney in Australia. And The Matrix was the project that started right after this one wrapped. Yep. And they straight up reused the sets from this movie for The Matrix. So like the rooftop sequence that Trinity is mm -hmm. running across, those are the rooftops from dark city they just used them again um, be. the uh i want to say the street where the agent runs into the phone booth that trinity is in is one of the streets from dark city uh just they just kept the sets and in many ways and kept the lighting too because <laughs> one of the things that uh, darius wolski did on this project i watched a couple of interviews with him where he was kind of reflecting back is he put uh, sodium vapor lights in all the street lights. And then they undercranked the film just enough to get that flicker because a sodium vapor light flickers at a very specific rate. And, and that now is done all the time, all the time. And, and he basically was one of the first people to, to do that and take that risk. So they, they lit everything with sodium vapor lights and then undercranked it so they could get that really cool, like you're actually standing in the light and it's flickering on you because like light outdoor lighting is not consistent, right? There's, yeah. there's flicker to it. So um, some really cool stuff there, very neat. But so um, the, the Matrix in this film are definitely playing in that same idea sandbox of, you know, the world is, is not what you think it is and, you know, maybe there's just one person that can change the way the world works kind of thing, uh, which is a neat thing, uh, especially for two projects that were so closely produced uh, in time. Uh, and then I'll leave you with what's considered the most positive review of this film, which was Ebert's review, where he said, a visionary achievement, a film so original and exciting, it stirred my imagination like Metropolis and 2001 A Space Odyssey. So different from other reviews. It's a completely different worldview. I do have Roger another one. Ebert was never excited about anything. <laughs> he, no, he did not care about movies like this. And he certainly wouldn't have compared them. I mean, we've talked about the Kubrick comparisons and how quickly people throw that around. And how truly unfair it is to be compared to Kubrick. And Ebert just does it here. He just says, yes, yeah, it's... Oh. Yeah, that's it weird. made me feel the same way that 2001 did. Well, it stirred his imagination. Uh, one last positive one from Stephen Hunter in the Washington Post. If you don't fall in love with it, you've probably never fallen in love with a movie. In oh. <laughs> Which I think is, I think is, is very telling. Um, and I think it's why the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes for this is so high. Because if you do engage with this film it's going to become one of your favorite films of all time. We saw There's this together so on a Sunday afternoon. And it yeah, was... This came out in late February, 1998. It was life-changing. Yeah, I, we'd never seen anything like this before. I mean, maybe The Crow, but The Crow was a very different enterprise than this. Yeah. Um, and the story in this unspools in such a unique way, um, which some people complained about in their views. They felt that the, the plot was fairly incoherent, which I, I really, I truly do not understand how you could find this an incoherent film. I don't film. either. Um, if anything, I think it's pitch perfect in the delivery of its its core conceits and, and then very quickly picks up. I'm, all, I'm always shocked at how early in this film our hero has a confrontation with the strangers. 
it always feels like something that should be happening about halfway through act two, but it's literally within the first 15 minutes of the yeah. film that he has already been made aware of them. Like there's no beating around the bush. There's no, Ooh, who are these mysterious people? We know. And we're just going. And, and that's really exciting as I'm sure we'll talk about. So some of the core issues that were discussed, visually stimulating, but with a muddled plot, too much exposition, too many characters yapping at each other about things, which, again, I've, I've never thought of dialogue in a film being bad, but I guess it can be. Um, recycled ideas from a genre mishmash, right? That this film is really just cobbling together both visuals and ideas from greater projects and greater films, and as a result, is weak. Um, that the ending, uh, which is a climactic battle sequence, is bad and overblown and, and does disservice to the rest of the story. Which in um, 2020 is a really funny thing to say about this It's a very funny thing to say. I mean, I will say there is no giant blue light shooting into the sky that everyone needs to destroy, but <laughs> I mean, it could have been, I guess. Uh, too dark and hard to see. A lot of people claiming that the film was too dark to be perceived and that that was a really bad thing, uh, which, okay. <laughs> and uh, that it really, if you are a film fan, it boils down to a mosaic of movie memories. Right? Oh, that, mm. looks, like, that looks like M. Oh, that looks like Metropolis. Oh, that looks like Nosferatu. Right? And a lot of people accused it of, of just rehashing old ideas in that way. So let's let's jump in. Um, just FYI, from here on out, we are going to spoil the ever-loving crap out of this movie. So if you would like to check it out based on our current discussion, feel free to pause, go give it a watch on your favorite streaming service or where, what have you, and, uh, and come back and listen to our discussion. But uh, we're pretty much going to start spoilers now. So this film is glorious, mm -hmm. uh, pretty much from start to finish. That opening shot is killer. The the opening shot is killer. It is very reminiscent. Well, I guess we should say the opening shot past the the pan down from the night sky. Um, so very famously, the studio demanded some voiceover narration. Uh, supposedly, they originally wanted a title card too, with like an explanation of what was going on. Um, similar to what happened to Event Horizon, you know, just something sort of explaining everything before the movie explains itself. <laughs> but we we start with a pan down from from the reaches of space down into this very industrial, very sort of nondescript, mishmashed city. Um, it's reminiscent of what we saw in The Crow. The Crow does some similar things as it establishes the sort of burned out husk of Detroit that it takes place in. And uh, we pan down and we settle on a man dressed in kind of a nondescript mid-1950s, late-1940s uh, look. He's got his, his uh, wool trench coat, his small fedora, and uh, he's sort of hobbling through... Uh, hobbling through the city, Everything and he's the guy has, who delivered the voiceover. Has these very vintage details, like everything looks sort of out of time about the film. Just initially, that's that's the look that it gives you. Right. Yeah. Everything is a quite literally a hodgepodge. Right. It's it's a little bit from this and a little bit from that. 
it's not a period piece, right? It's not trying to be like, oh, this is 1952 in America, right? It's not that at all. But it just evokes a lot of different time periods. But the, the first shot, the one that, you know, you were, were talking about comes right afterwards. And it is a, a slow push in on a window, the window in a hotel. This hotel is broken and beaten. It's obviously model work, but it's beautiful model work and it's lit extremely well. But we push in on a swinging lamp inside of a circular window and then cut to uh, Rufus Sewell, our hero, uh, asleep in a bathtub with a, a line of blood dripping from the center of his forehead. He awakens, he has no idea who he is, no idea where he is, and he's obviously in this state of distress, right? And this scene is really good, but it establishes the color palette of the world. Everything's kind of dirty. Everything's a little broken. The colors are dirty, but they're so rich. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it, this film, not unlike The Matrix, is extremely green, sickly, yes. right? Everything is, has got a green tinge to it by, by design, seemingly. But it's a it's a rich green. It's a deep green. Uh, the green of the Matrix is kind of that's um, an LCD green. Yeah, it's it's like the glow of an LCD monitor on your face, right? Whereas this is these are very deep, very saturated greens, forest greens, and um, it just quickly establishes this this very dark and and fascinating color palette to this thing. And it's there right from the start. The floor is green. The tile on the walls are green. Uh, everything. But then we get these bursts of color, which is what I, I really love about the setup of this film, is that Proyas is a visual stylist. And I would even say The Matrix is, is bad at this at times. Is that he always knows that within your frame, even though it may be dominated by this you know single color, this green or what have you, you do need these bursts of color to draw attention. And he very, very carefully places those. I really love, uh, so our, our hero is he's stumbling around, he knocks over a fishbowl and the fish is flopping around on the ground. And it's this bright orange red goldfish and he picks it up and he sort of drops it into the bath water to save its life, which of course becomes a, a plot point later. But that burst of, of orange red with the sea of green is just enough visual interest to sort of snap you back, right? It doesn't become washed out as a lot of films with really defined color palettes tend to do. You know, again, if, since Ebert made the Kubrick comparison, we'll go ahead and do it here. It's why the spacesuits in 2001 are those hot rod colors, whereas everything else is gray and white, right? Hal's eye is red. The spacesuits orange and yellow and blue. It's because you need that that burst of brightness to separate up the universe, and it's it's just really it's an effective technique, and I think Proyas just kills it right out of the gate with this sequence. But um, from a plot standpoint, the next major thing that happens as our our main character, still unnamed, still don't know who he is, stumbles out of his room. Um, he finds a dead woman with spirals carved into her chest. And he freaks out, he runs away, he has no idea what's happened, you know, is he the one who killed her? We don't know. And then right there, as he exits the room at the end of the hall in the elevator, are the strangers, right? So, the strangers have a real kind of Cenobite vibe, mm -hmm. right? Um, so Cenobites are the, the main characters, the main antagonist characters from the Hellraiser series. Pale skin, 
black um, long cloaks with these furred collars, uh, which is great. I mean, one of the things, I mean, you know something is off immediately in this world. You've got characters wearing furred collars and wool coats. You've got dudes wearing Hawaiian shirts. Just everything is thrown together and it just doesn't quite fit. And it's such a subtle effect, but it's so effective at, at putting you off just a little bit. And I, I think that really comes through. Um, so what do you think of the strangers? I mean, they really just kind of show up right here. Obviously, there's some Nosferatu connections as well, but... I mm. absolutely love this character design. I And I have to give praise. I, I know he's he's done and said some things, but I, I don't like to bring that into my evaluation of someone's performance. But Richard O'Brien is the um, primary antagonist of The Strangers. He plays Mr. Hand. Mm -hmm. And he is absolutely bone-chilling. Just so terrifying. Um, his performance really, I think, took those characters to another level for me. I think without him sort of delivering, um, maybe they wouldn't have been as cool, but he sells that creepiness. He sells that horror aspect um, in what I'm not really sure would count as a horror film. Um, so I, I loved them. I loved everything about the aesthetic and, and the, you know, the... The characters themselves, I just, I think it's fantastic. It is kind of a perfect storm of a villain. Uh, and O'Brien, again, in case people aren't familiar with his work, he's probably best known at this point for playing Riff Raff in mm -hmm. the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which supposedly uh, Proyas said in interviews after the fact that it, he was inspired by that character, that the strangers in general were sort of linked to some of what Riff Raff does in Rocky Horror Picture Show. And so Which that the, fits with the soul, the the alien motif. Yeah, um, every there's something about them is wrong, right? And it, it makes a ton of sense and then somehow, you know, O'Brien was willing to engage and and actually be in the film, but you're right, it's it's something I think about his voice. Most of the other strangers are very monotone, save for Ian Richardson, you know, who plays Mr. Book. They're very monotone, they're very flat, and we get a, a story reason for that later in the film, but um, O'Brien has this air of menace to his his presentation that's there right from the start. Yeah, it's even in the way that he moves. Yeah, kind of serpentine, a little bit, a little bit alien again. Um, you know, there's an air of danger to him. And so we find out that they have the ability to make people fall asleep, um, Murdoch, our, our main character, he goes down and he's staying in a hotel. The guy has his ledger with everybody's sign-ins and he finds out that his name is Jay Murdoch. So at least he has some semblance of knowing who he is. And uh, he leaves the hotel. The guy goes up to kick him out of his room. And uh, he confronts the strangers and they put this guy to sleep. Make him fall asleep and that doesn't seem to make much sense. Uh, then we basically get introduced to... Our, our other main character, which is played by Jennifer Connelly in the midst of her hot streak, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, the, the 90s were very uh, fond of Jennifer Connelly. They put her in a lot of stuff. And, and this is probably one of the last 
major things that she did. I, I really didn't, she didn't show up again on my radar until uh, Requiem for a Dream uh, with uh, Aronofsky a few years later. Yeah. But uh, this is kind of the end of the phase where she was being positioned as kind of a Hollywood femme fatale. This uh, Betty Page. This is after like inventing the Abbots and all that stuff, right? Right. Yeah. This is all in that that run that she had in the nineties. You know, really post Rocketeer, I guess. And and so there's still sort of she's playing that that vampy sort of uh, you know beautiful songstress, right? So we actually open with her singing on stage with a jazz band and performing in a nightclub, and then she's summoned to meet uh, Dr. Schrieber. Uh, played by Kiefer Sutherland. Again, another actor who is just a couple of years away from probably their largest career success. Um, but this was a, a pretty dark time for Kiefer Sutherland's career. He was not doing a lot of stuff. He was working, but it was a lot of well, he B was and C caught, tier stuff. He was caught in between that that identity of being the dude from the Lost Boys and what he right, was the, sort of turning into, pack. which would eventually right. be 24. Exactly, and he's he's about three years away from twenty four here, um, so he is. For those of you who may only be familiar with Kiefer Sutherland through that character in that show, where he plays this commanding, powerful, unstoppable force, uh, Doctor Schreiber is the opposite of that. He is weak and mewling and unimpressive in every way, and Sutherland owns it. I mean, he throws himself into the character in many ways. I think he's he's doing a lot of affectation to Schreiber. Um, Schreiber passes himself off as a psychiatrist, which we do find out is, is there's a kernel of truth to that, but he is trying to get into contact with Murdoch. He's, he needs to talk to him about something. And so he's contacted his wife played by Connelly in an attempt to try and get into contact, hoping that he would reach out to her. And so one of my favorite shots in this movie is we walk in uh, again, so much of it, when you do a rewatch, there are things you see how much the Proyas is seeded into the film to help you understand what's going on. But on first you know, glance, it just seems like background noise. In this case, Schreiber is running a rat through a maze. Common psychological experiment. <laughs> if he's a psychiatrist, that makes sense. Um, but this maze is very unique in that it's a giant spiral, right? It's a circular maze. And the rat has got to get out from the middle of that maze, which becomes one of our first examples, apart from the carving done on the dead woman inside of Murdoch's hotel room, uh, of spirals. Right. So this film has a lot of visual representations of and callbacks to endless swirling spirals. And uh, it, it has a very specific story reason, but again, first time through, it may not make a ton of sense why we keep seeing these spiraling images and why they keep coming back. Um, but so they meet up, Schreiber, you know, provides a little bit of context, says, and we find out that uh, Murdoch and his wife had become estranged because she had been unfaithful. And that may very well be why he has escaped and uh, evaded uh, being with her and, and is now in some kind of trouble. So we get introduced to our, our kind of last major character of the film, and that is Detective Bumstead, played by William Hurt. Uh, so we're introduced to him. He's sitting in his office playing accordion, which I think has some very specific connotations for the type of person that he is. Um, a little bit boring, a little bit dull, but a spark of creativity inside of him somewhere, perhaps. Um, 
I, I love Hurt in this movie. I, I don't know about you. I think he's just... I love him in every movie. <laughs> he's uh-huh. he's really dependable. Like, I think his range in many ways is limited, but he always comes at his characters with something special and, and memorable, especially in this film. In this film, he he is our gumshoe character. He is our detective. And... and he just sells it right from the visuals. Uh, he has the coolest hat in the film <laughs> by far. Um, there are some cool hats in this movie. He has the classic Stetson fedora and and wears it well. But uh, we were. I love how in this movie, and a lot of this I think is probably Goyer because Goyer is very good at this. You know, we we need to know that Bumstead is a stickler for precision, right? That. He's he's a details guy, which becomes important later. And so as he passes one of like the random cops, he's like, "Hey, your shoes untied," you know, because he notices that kind of thing. And uh, so we get introduced to him, and then you know, find out that he has taken over this case of uh, dead uh, hookers, basically being found. There are up to six or seven of them, and he's taken over the case from another detective who has gone a bit a bit south. Something Walensky. is wrong with him. Yeah, Detective Walensky has has no longer been able to complete his duties as a detective. Um, then we we shift back to Murdoch and we get a great scene inside of an automat, which is really cool. Another sort of strange piece out of time. Uh, automats were automated diners, right? Where you could go. It's similar to what you're, you're going to see in a cafeteria today, where you go and you, you know, select your item from the rotating thing, and then you pop it out and eat it, you know, whatever. But automats had like a person cooking behind the scenes, and then they would put everything out. You put your money and press the button, take your food. And so Murdoch had left his wallet at the automat, so he's hoping to get some, you know, information from. The wallet, and that's really where his mystery begins. So, pretty much right off the gate, all of the characters have very defined goals, which is what I love. If anything, Schrieber's the only one that's a bit mysterious at this point. Murdoch wants to understand his identity. Bumstead wants to solve the case. Um, Jennifer Connelly's character wants to reconcile with her husband. Um, you know, Schrieber wants to make contact with Murdoch, but really his goals are, are larger and tied to some of the bigger things going on. And then, of course, the strangers want to find Murdoch. So, you know, for people saying, like, I don't understand what the characters are doing or what the characters are about, I think, if anything, this movie is very, very specific about what its characters are doing. There's very little ambiguity to their goals uh, for the vast majority of the film. And I think in a movie that has this many plot threads running simultaneously, that's important. And, and I think that Proyas executes all of these storylines very well, because this is another scenario where if you're really cutting back and forth between all these stories and you're not good at it, this movie's going to fall apart very quickly, but I don't think that happens here. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know what, with, how the opening of the film sort of establishes all those different motivations, I, I like that they're also establishing different parts of the universe, that we get sort of a different world-building aspect with each character's you know, journey ahead. Um, right. 
you know, with Murdoch, we see things that are sort of seedier. We see him with, um, with, you know, the, the murder victim. And then he goes, you know, he, after he picks up his wallet, he goes to the, the prostitute's apartment and, and it's all just sort of dirty and, and, really unseemly and then we have Bumstead who's kind of fleshing out you know how there is a larger mystery that that other police officers like the thing with Walensky um you know and the idea that something in this universe is wrong we get that Bumstead is the one who is actively seeking what is wrong with this universe um He's got an, an eye on the larger picture, whereas Murdoch is forced to be basically just focused on himself and, and moving through the streets of the city trying to figure out who he is. So I don't know. All of the character goals and, and motivations just sort of jigsaw together really nicely. I never had any any questions or or confusion about what anybody was doing or wanted. I I just I don't understand that criticism at all. Yeah. Uh, the other piece of this, uh, you know, we, we start getting some recurrent imagery within the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie. As we mentioned, the spirals, uh, it's revealed that Murdoch's fingers are spirals, right? That his his fingerprints are a whirl, a single spiral, uh, moving out from each other, which seems like some kind of joke, right? What, what could that be? Uh, and then Bumstead kind of gets smashed together with the Murdoch side when uh, Jennifer Connelly's character shows up after her meeting with Schreiber, and says, well, I don't, I thought my husband had just left me. Now I think there's actually something wrong. And they get thrown together. And so Bumstead kind of lays out, hey, we think that he might be a killer, right? Which we don't know either. That's one of the, the nice things of the, one of the central con- concepts at the heart of this movie is what makes you who you are, right? What determines you as a person, right? The film sort of loosely refers to this as your soul, right? And and I think that this is where that really comes into focus because everybody who knows, quote unquote, knows John Murdoch, says, oh, he could never do something like this. He would never kill people. He would never murder these ladies of the night, right? Whereas, you know, Bumstead as the outside observer is like, well, anybody could be a murderer and even Murdoch himself says, I don't think that's who I am. I don't feel like someone who could do something like that. And so all of that gets set up really quickly. Um, we get another reference to rats. Uh, Walensky's office is covered in uh, mouse traps, And so we've seen the rat in the maze. Now we see the, the mouse traps, And then uh, we cut back to, uh, as you mentioned, after the automat, Murdoch is sort of helped by a local prostitute and he goes back to her her room and she's seemingly getting ready to offer her services and Murdoch is is considering and trying to work out like am I the kind of person that would do this is, is this who I am and so he's going through his wallet he finds a picture of uh, Jennifer Connelly and he's struggling to sort of piece things together and he finally gets his name which is nice it's a nice moment so he realizes that because at the the hotel all he knew is he was jay murdoch and he finds out that his name is, is john which i think is a nice reveal here because again he's being propositioned by a prostitute yeah, so <laughs> a john right uh, i always thought that, that was kind of funny that that's uh, that's how it, how the timing of it worked out 
Uh, another a very early performance from Melissa George, uh, who some people may recognize from Alias. Uh, she showed up in the third season of Alias, had a, a fairly brief run on that show. Um, an Australian actress who, you know, worked on quite a bit. And this was her first um, film role. Uh, so it's very, very early. She was in Down With Love. She's She's been in a bunch of stuff, actually. Uh, she was the lead in uh, 30 Days of Night, that movie. Um but yeah, so it's just, it's always nice. Uh, I think she's a sort of underrated actress. She had another movie called uh, Triangle. I don't know if you saw that one or not. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in one of the earliest films I remember watching on Netflix was Triangle. It's a horror movie about a group of people trapped on a cruise ship where strange things are happening with time. And uh, really liked it. Uh, it's a solid movie. But uh, a little bit of a horror movie, but but not exactly. I enjoyed it. So anyway, she plays the the prostitute, and, and she has a nice, a small turn. She's only in the movie a little bit, but she does a really good job with what she's got. And so Murdoch is finally confronted with the reality that he's being set up in many ways as the killer of these women, even though he doesn't feel responsible for that. And then straight up, like 20 minutes into the movie, he has his first confrontation with the strangers, right? And that's how they're referred to as the strangers. Um, Again, Richard O'Brien is the lead stranger, Mr. Hand. But we also have Bruce Spence from the Mad Max franchise. Uh, he played the helicopter pilot. I don't remember. What, I think he was just called the pilot or something. He has a great face. Uh, yeah, just iconic. And he's huge. He's like six foot seven or six foot eight or something. So he's just this tall, imposing figure in this long black cloak. And uh, we have our first confrontation. It takes place on a billboard. There's a lot of really nice, like intricately painted advertising billboards in this movie that I think are really cool. Uh, it sets up a, a reveal at the very end of the film when they, they sort of are, are going to location and they, it's just a billboard. It's just an advertisement for the place. It sort of hints at the artificiality of the world, right? That it's all yeah. just an advertisement for things, but none of it, it actually exists. It very much feels like false fronts. Um, yeah, everything's just a false front. Yeah, every sure, right? a lot of the sets have a kind of unreality to them, which is why it's so perfect they were used again in the Matrix, because it's yeah. all about unreality. Um, everything is anachronistic, and everything feels a little bit fake. Um, and that's why the billboard is just, it's so kind of iconic to the film, because it's that fakeness. <laughs> Right. It's it's the thing that could never really exist in this fashion. Uh, but it's where they sell uh, Shell Beach, right? Uh, a, play, a location that becomes important later. But we also find out that the strangers are not human, which they didn't really seem human, but we get direct confirmation of that. Uh, within the confrontation, Murdoch is able to uh, perform some psychic tricks. He makes the floor go away. He makes the arm on the the swinging arm on the billboard fall and uh, hit the head of one of the strangers. It splices it open and inside is some sort of alien creature, right? So this is where the film, if if you hadn't sort of understood its sci-fi roots, this is where you find out very specifically that this is science fiction because these are aliens. So then we pan down and I love it because we just straight pan down into the darkness and we're expected to understand that all of these people are just kind of underneath the city. 
and there are many of them. I, I don't know if there's a specific headcount, easily five, 500 or so of these, you know, strangers. So we find out they can die, which is an important thing uh, for later in the film. But we also find out that there are many of them and that they are doing something in the city, right? They have some kind of purpose that they are attempting uh, to perform, something they want. So we cut back and Bumstead is returning Murdoch's wife to her home and he ends up hanging around. Murdoch does figure out where his address is. He comes home, meets his wife, gets a little bit more backstory. They're estranged. She cheated on him, um, but he has zero memory of any of this stuff. All he knows is that they're connected and he's looking for anything to connect to at this point, which is one of the things I love about his character is that you know, divorced from his memories, he's just trying to find some purchase in the world, something that he can latch onto and, and sort of accept as his own. And so we get a, a really good scene. Um, I think Connolly is, is doing a lot here. I don't know if her character has a ton of depth, right? I mean, she's, she brings depth to every role that is given yeah, to her. <laughs> there's a lot going on. Uh, with her here and again artificiality is a huge component of this film and what we find out very in, in very short order is that basically these strangers are running an experiment and that every human in this place is part of that experiment and that the trail of blood on Murdoch's forehead when he awoke was a failed attempt to basically um, insert new memories into his mind. Because they keep, the strangers are, are remixing the world to see what makes us tick, to see what gives us our humanity, our soul. And they keep coming up with new scenarios and creating these scenarios and then the humans are really just puppets, right? They're just marionettes and they're pulling the strings and seeing what happens, hoping that something will reveal itself. And Murdoch somehow has developed the ability to resist those urges and impulses. They've, the, he's, he can resist and fight what the strangers are trying to do. Um, seemingly, and, and the word evolution is specifically dropped by Schreiber later in the film. So Murdoch didn't get those memories, whereas everybody else did. So she feels connected to Murdoch. He doesn't necessarily feel that way. And it's a really nice scene. Uh, I think Rufus Sewell doesn't get a lot of credit. As he really doesn't. <laughs> he was he was really hot at this point. Like he was doing a lot of you know British period dramas and things like that at the time. But uh, he brings a lot of emotion to this character because this is a character who is inherently unstable, who is unanchored. Um, and, and who we still don't know much about. No, very little, very little. And, and he continues to sort of unspool it as he goes, little by little. Uh, I really, I will say that I love the memory effect in this movie. Um, whenever a character is remembering something, there's this very specific sound effect. And it's sort of all, it's almost like the speed effect in an anime. Uh, just sort of like applied over the top of it and you just get a little glimpse of the thing that they're trying to remember. And so he's been getting flashes of beaches and, and you know, Shell Beach and things like that. But he has, after the scene with Connolly, he gets his first confrontation with Bumstead where he, he basically tells Bumstead, that's that's not me. Like, I'm not that guy. 
Bumstead, of course, doesn't believe him, but but there's something to it. Well, even right. Bumstead right away knows that there's something more to this than just a, a guy killing prostitutes. Right, and and I think that that's one of the cool things is that as Bumstead's story spirals on, quite literally, he is just being opened up to the idea that the world is not the neat and tidy box that he believes it is, right? So all those clues at the beginning that he's this sort of boring, fastidious man now underpin why he would be so completely unraveled by the revelations that he is having. Um, we get another small glimpse of Murdoch's ability. He literally makes a door appear behind him so he can escape. Um, but then, you know, drops a card for Schreiber and, and that's, you know, becomes Bumstead's next, <laughs> next place to go. Yeah, but, yeah. but we get a bunch of really cool conversations in this movie as, Basically, Murdoch asks very basic questions about the world, and people can't answer them, right? They don't have context. And one of the, the things, you know, this movie has been written about pretty extensively. Uh, movies with good ideas in them, like this film, like The Matrix, they often get those kinds of pieces. But there has been a lot of allegorical work with Dark City in relationship to, you know, Plato's very famous contemplation of the cave. Mm-hmm. right that if you didn't know that you were trapped inside this cave that would be your world that would be your reality and it was only you would just you know see the shadows passing on the wall and assume that that's what the world is and this film very much plays on that same philosophical concept right like if if the world was broken but you didn't know anything else or you had forgotten that anything else existed how would you really know right how would you know that your world was busted, right? It's the same essential question that The Matrix asks. And, and this film goes at it, I think, in a much more directly philosophical way. You know, the, the Matrix is underpinned by a lot of really good philosophical questions, but then it doesn't ever really address them, right? It brings them up. It says, hey, why are you breathing? You know, you're in a computer. What difference does it make? But it doesn't necessarily dwell on them or consider the effects of all the character, you know, that it would have on a character's mental state. Whereas this film really does allow time to breathe for that. But so this, you know, allegory of the cave really plays into, you know, for me is mostly Bumstead, right? Bumstead is the guy who's like, well, the world's fine. But as Murdoch is having these conversations, like uh, he notices in a, in a taxi, that a guy has like a snow globe for Shell Beach. And he's like, hey, do you know how to get to Shell Beach? And the guy's like, yeah, we go there all the time. And he's like, you just turn down on the, you just uh, go to the, and and like nobody does it. And there's a really good one later where he asks, uh, you know, because Murdoch, the other major conceit that we get exposed to in relatively short order is that the world stops every night at midnight, right? So, what happens when the world stops? It's a very creepy concept. It's such a cool concept, man. It's executed so well here. So, so what goes on? I'll let, I'll let you explain because it's fun. Um, well, they, from Murdoch's perspective, everyone falls asleep. He's the only one who does not fall asleep. Everybody else just sort of slumps over wherever they are and the environment begins to change. Um, Buildings are 
altered. They start, I mean, it's sort of like the, um, the same, you know, evolving city technique that we saw with Inception. Of course, Inception had better effects and was, mm, you know, big very. budget and all that. But with this, we see that same sort of expanding and growing city, you know, buildings cropping up and, and changing architecture. Um, and then the strangers themselves come out and they actually do their experimenting on people as they sleep. So they replace their memories with a syringe full of new memories. Right. Um, which is a, in itself, that's a terrifying concept to have your memory stolen. Because so many of us yeah. believe in some way that our memories make us who we are. We talk about experiences, you know, contributing to who we are as people. And to have that taken away from you, then are you ever really a person? Right. And that is a, a, one of the core questions of this film is do your memories make you who you are or is there some additional undefinable uncalculable or incalculable something that drives you and then the memories just sort of solidify that or push you in certain directions and and that's one of the core questions of the film and it's one of the interest it's one of the most interesting questions i think the film asks and of the slate of films that we're asking these big questions about the world and what is reality and what is, you know, what are all these things? This one I think has one of the more interesting philosophical takes on that because of that focus. So John is, uh, he sort of hunts down Schreiber. He sees the strangers interacting with Schreiber and, and sort of their relationship. Schreiber is obviously terrified of them. But these this work that they do at midnight when everyone falls asleep, which we it's a great sequence. Basically, you know, Proya shoots a lot of it wide. Everything's on a set, so it's not that wide. But, you know, everything comes to a stop. People slump over in their chairs. The And then we really get an articulation of what they do with uh, this one specific family. Right. Yeah. So there's a husband and wife eating dinner and he's complaining about his job. He, you know, he's. Low man on the totem pole is not getting respected. She's a housewife and, and is listening. And she's like, oh, you know, you got to do better. And, you know, it's this very middle class, lower middle class family. And everything goes to sleep. Schreiber comes in with his vials. He injects them both with new memories. And the injection, the the needle unspools. And, and Proyas has several very close-up shots of that needle sort of unwinding yeah. before it goes in and there's this sound effect that goes along <laughs> with it it is so disturbing <laughs> and and so perfect just pitch perfect in its tone at, at putting you off just a little bit but so he injects them with new memories and then as all this is happening we see the world reshaping around them and they're going from this dingy terrible crappy little apartment to this massive mansion right uh with huge stairways and, and you know columns and, and all this stuff and it, it basically then we see them wake up and they get into this very hoity-toity conversation about oh well so-and-so was underperforming at the office so i made sure that he was fired and the other woman's like oh well, you were right to do so you know all these different things and and we had just seen them like face down in soup a few minutes earlier and we had that great little you know piece of of dialogue from Schreiber as he's 
you know, implanting these new memories, talking about changing people. And it's, it's weird because he's, as a character, he supposedly loathes what they do every night, but he's getting a sort of sick pleasure out of it. He seems to enjoy it. He revels in it. And we finally sort of get an understanding of Schreiber's role in all of this. Because Schreiber is human. He's not a stranger. He's, uh, he has a, an eye deformity, possibly from a previous injury at the hands of the strangers. We don't really know for sure. But ultimately, we find out that Schreiber is the one who both concocts the memories because he, as a psychiatrist and a human, sort of understands the mixing and uh, he also administers because the strangers don't want to be involved in that part of it either, seemingly. So, so Schreiber is their ally and assistant, but it's pretty established, or at least quickly established, that he's not necessarily doing so because he wants to, although he does seem to enjoy part of the process. And I, I think that's why they sort of chose the, the position of psychiatrist for him. Because psychiatrists, especially psychiatrists throughout history, um, many of them have pushed the boundaries of, of experimentation, right? And done things that would be considered uncouth. You know, we've got uh, several examples in, in early American psychology of, of them going too far. And I think that may be part of it. Uh, I think his name is also telling. Uh, Schreiber, uh, Daniel Schreiber, was an early... Uh, psychiatrist, uh, maybe, uh, not necessarily <laughs> um, of the good kind, but uh, he wrote an early book that did have some influence on Freud, and and basically recorded his own psychoses. It, it was he, many believe that he he may have been schizophrenic now. Um, and it was sort of documenting his experiences. And so I think that they're playing a bit on that. That feels a very like a very Goyer thing to me. Uh, you know, Goyer, say what you want about him, but he generally is fairly well-researched and is, is pretty good at pulling in little bits of history into his scripts to ground them. And I think Schreiber is maybe a bit of that as well. Um, because he is a bit gleeful and, and a bit a bit out there, you know, if we want to be loose about it. And I think that he's kind of playing to that type in psychiatry. So then we get our, our real first understanding of what the uh, what the strangers do. Right? They have a machine. It's a, represented as a giant clock inside of a face. Very iconic. Cool looking. Very metropolis. Set. Very metropolis. Um, you know, the, the time inside the the person or the being, right? Um, I love that the clock has no numbers. It has like four quadrants, but it's kind of cool. I mean, for a movie that seems so obsessed with time, there is no time, right? There's no time in this place. Like noon means nothing. Midnight <laughs> means nothing uh, because there's no cycle to the day, but yet so much seems regulated by time. Uh, so Ian Richardson, a great Scottish actor, plays Mr. Book, the, the leader of the strangers, even though we're told by Schreiber uh, in relatively short order that they're a collective entity, right? They really share one mind and one set of memories. But Book still seems to be sort of the, the guy in charge. And uh, so his, his line is, shut it down. Shut it down. Shut it down. 
and and then the world just comes to a stop. They they use their uh, telepathic telepathic abilities, what is referred to in the film as tuning, um, to uh, make everything stop. Everybody falls asleep. Every car comes to a stop. People fall off their benches. Um, <laughs> the movie that's shown during the sequence is the, the evil. Right? <laughs> the movie's just called the evil, which is hilarious. Um, but the world comes to an end, and and our man Murdoch is the only one who is awake to see it, and he freaks out. Which as you I, would, which I love it. Right, your your protagonist in a film like this, you know, he's supposed to be calm and cool and collected, and he is not. He is wide eyed, he is panic breathing, and he is like, "What is happening?" He's kicking cars, trying to wake people up. Uh, it's such a cool sequence, and again, it's shot so so well. Uh, I cannot say enough about the lighting in this movie. the The decision to use the sodium vapor lights and, and then let them, and then let the flicker come through, makes this feel so much more like an outdoor, like an actual outdoor setting. It really does. Like everything in this is is studio, all every bit of it, but it feels like a real outdoor setting. It's a, it's a very dark one, but the way that they let those lights oscillate, it's such a visually interesting thing. And, and Wolski now is, is sort of, you know, in, in my mind, he's kind of the de facto guy that you would get if you want a kind of modern noir look to your stuff, which is why I think Scott works with him all the time. You know, if you look at alien, you know, it's, it's an, it's, it's noir in terms of its visual presentation, right? The darkness, the way it's lit, um, it has all those hallmarks, and I think that's why he and Wolski sort of work well together visually. Because uh, really, Alien Covenant has a lot of the same, a lot of the same color palette that this movie does. Uh, you know, you get the the sort of browns out in the grass and in the more natural environments. I mean, that one sequence in Alien Covenant where everything is lit by the uh, flares. Yeah. God, that looks so good. I mean, it looks so, so good. And there's a lot in this movie that sort of is evocative of that, too. But obviously, you know, from a cinematographer with 25 years of experience in between the two projects. But we get a lot of um, what I'm going to call Proyas edits in, in this set of the film. Proyas really likes to have long tracking shots where we're kind of moving toward a single object and then he rapidly cuts and intersperses other things into it, but he anchors the sequence in that long push. Um, and he does it again and again and again. Uh, Proyas is a, is a rapid editor. Right? One of the things that Ebert really focused on in his commentary is how many edits per minute this film has. And the number is astronomical. Right, It's like 120 edits a minute. Right, He is shifting scenes so so quickly but he does it seamlessly and naturally right you know we've talked about the plague of modern action films and how they just over edit everything this does a lot of the same stuff but it never feels bewildering and it never yeah. feels unnecessary it's there's such some, a you know, well, there's such a nice mixture of shot types in the film that i i feel like you wouldn't notice the amount of shots because it's it's a nice mixture of you know long like wide shots uh, and then close-ups and then 
some medium shots. He's got a lot of great zoom effects that he's using. It's just, it's so varied and it's so interesting to watch that you, even if you wouldn't notice that anything was the same, <laughs> it gets just perfect. <clears throat> yeah. Proyas never, he's infinitely interesting in terms of how he designs his shots. Um, especially at this point in his career, everything feels bespoke. Everything feels specific to the moment. Mm -hmm. um, nothing feels like, oh, well, you know, this is just how I would do this thing. And I just repeat myself. Uh, it all feels purpose built, right? It's, it's just what's needed to tell the story and, and tell it in a really engaging way. But, you know, I, like I said, I, I really love it. There's a lot of low angle stuff here too. Mm -hmm. It's not extreme low angle, but it's it's shot waist high looking up, which gives the film, again, it's a bit off kilter. It's a bit German expressionist, but everything feel, you know, in terms of, you know, if, if like Fincher says, you know, we're all just perverts and we love films because it gives us the ability to watch other human beings doing things that we shouldn't be able to watch them do. This film is putting us in that position, but then it's sort of dropping us down to the same eye level of a child. Yeah. Right. Of like a, of a little kid, right. To where we feel even more out of what's going on. You feel right? very even, small. Yeah. Like you are unimportant. Right. And that's a really strange place to be. You don't see that very often, especially just in your, I mean, what I'll call run-of-the-mill shots, right? These are just shots that he's using to tell the story. And yet he's still making this very conscious effort to drop us lower, to to force us down in the frame and looking up at these incredible things that are happening, right? And, and I think it's to increase the grandeur a little bit to help us understand just how strange and out of place these things are. But it's it's a really subtle choice, but it's it's super, super effective at helping us follow this world along and help us understand our place as the viewer in it, right? Um, it's a just really fascinating effect and, and something I think he does in The Crow a little bit too. Um, you know, some similar choices being made there. Um, so in terms of story, uh, basically we have a, a confrontation between Schreiber and Murdoch. Murdoch gets angry, uses his tuning ability to sort of throw him down a street, which I'm really unsure how Kiefer Sutherland, <laughs> how Schreiber would have just shattered his tailbone when he hit the, hit the ground because he throws him like 40 feet or something. Um, but we find out in this sequence, the main thing is that Schreiber is actively working against the strangers, and he feels that Murdoch is the key to sort of ending their power. And uh, he's he's running a long game, a, a con, if you will, where he's hopefully going to uh, unseat them because he doesn't like working for them, even though he may get some bit of glee from it now and then. Uh, and then the world resumes, right? Everything goes back, but things have been disrupted, right? They weren't able to complete certain things. We do get a great scene of them at these long conveyor belts, almost, you know, you know, there's a lot of industrial imagery in this, and the city itself is this very sort of dirty, you know, sort of post-World War II industrial city, um, you know, a Detroit, a Chicago, something like that. But we do get a, a 
picture uh, or a shot of all of the strangers assembling all the items that they need to make these changes to the world, right? And this voiceover saying, oh, we're going to need, you know, 17 of this kind of document. We're going to need five books with these names in it and all these different things. And then they're kind of assembling all this stuff on this big assembly line so that they can, you know, convince the world. And then I get what Bruce Spence later says, oh, we'll fill your home with pretty things soon enough, yeah. right? As they're making the shift and, and changing who Jennifer Connelly's uh, memory or what her memories are. They're making a plan to do that. Um, so the middle of the film, the second act is really just Murdoch evading the strangers and Bumstead, and then the strangers desperately trying to get some kind of handle on what Murdoch is up to. Um, their their approach is to actually inject Mister Hand with the memories that were intended for Murdoch but failed to take. Uh, yeah. Most of the other strangers are against this plan because seemingly they've tried this before and it didn't go well, but they really feel like it's their only choice because he, they assume that Murdoch's going to be trying to unravel who he's supposed to be. So they feel like if one of their members has his memories, they'll be able to sort of beat him to the punch. And so of course it's Richard O'Brien's Mr. Hand who gets that treatment. And uh, it has negative effects. To <laughs> Needless least. to say. Needless to say, things go bad. Um, but we also do get a glimpse. It's it's a nice scene because it establishes you know the links that all of these people are willing to go to. But we also do get the glimpses of the memories that were supposed to have formed John Murdoch, including his relationship with Jennifer Connelly, and so. Uh, but as well as the murderous impulses too. I mean, I guess we can't leave that yeah. out because they they really were going to make him the killer. Like that was the experiment to see what a man who had never been a killer before and who ostensibly had the memories of someone that would be a good person, what would happen if you made them a murderer, right? You forced them into that position. And so, you know, basically they've just created a, a murderer <laughs> and a pretty good one at that. Yeah. Uh, so he continues to sort of unspool things. He finds a postcard that, uh, you know, he has an uncle Carl that's supposed to live close to shell beach. And so, you know, he goes off on his own little world. And then we get a, a great scene between Murdoch and Walensky. Uh, what do you make of that scene? So like Walensky is, we're supposed to believe he's insane, but if you watch this movie multiple times, everything that Walensky says is right. Yeah. No, he's it's right about everything. <laughs> um, I love it because there's always this suggestion that he was a normal guy, that maybe he was Bumstead, you know, Bumstead interacts with him as though at one point, this was a reasonable man. This was a good cop. And what has happened to him? Um, right. And I, I just, I kind of love Bumstead's journey to finding out the complexities of this, this world that he lives in and has seemingly lived in without thinking about it for so long. Um, right. And that little scene is, is great because it's just adding to that kind of, am I crazy? Is this really happening? Um, because everything Walensky says is correct, but yet he's, he's insane. He's insane. <laughs> and and it, it really does play on that idea that 
you know, perhaps some of the people in our world that we ignore because what they say doesn't fit with the narrative that we've all chosen to, to sort of say is true, that maybe they have something, maybe they are seeing the world accurately in a different way. And so Walensky here, I think he does sort of, he's where Bumstead will, if Bumstead was, is given the chance, this is where he will go because he also being straight laced and thinking he understands the world and what it means confronted with reality that may not be the case because Walensky basically says that he rides the subways all the time and realizes that he never gets anywhere. He just rides around in circles, right? He never reaches a destination. Which again, on the surface, doesn't make sense. Of course, subways go to destinations. But what he's saying is there's no way out of the system. The system is closed. It's a closed loop. And no matter where you go, you will never break that loop. And of course, you know, we get some really good production design. Walensky's entire room is covered in spirals. He's writing, you know, he's doing all of the things that we expect a crazy person to do. But all of the information that he shares with people is is right. And so uh, Murdoch watches him kill himself. He throws himself in front of the subway that he's been riding for so long. And uh, Walensky kind of exits the film, which Bumstead, you know, deals with a little bit later. Then, then everything with Walensky is, is just really that nice kind of textural addition. I just, I liked that character. Yeah, he wouldn't have to be here. I mean, technically Bumstead is enough detective for this movie, but... It's supposed to, I think, unnerve you. I think Proyas tries pretty hard to sort of keep the audience off kilter, right? That we, of course, now have a ton of information about what's wrong with the world, but yet the consequences of that information don't really ever hit home for the major characters, right? Murdoch is still trying to figure out who he is. Bumstead's still just trying to catch Murdoch. So we need to kind of see, like, if you really did live in a world like this that was controlled and dominated and... You know, you didn't remember what the sun looked like. You know, if you, if you really did wake up and realize these things, you would kind of lose your mind. Um, and again, I'm, I'm shocked at how many of these concepts transition into the Matrix, right? The Matrix deals with them in, in somewhat similar ways. Because I think at the end of the day, you have to kind of ask those questions if you really confront the nature of, you know, what would it mean if your world didn't exist? So... You know, after that, we really get a couple of scenes focused on uh, Jennifer Connelly's character as she attempts to kind of understand what Murdoch's been up to. One of the strangers, well, the stranger with Murdoch's memories approaches her and, you know, basically sort of tells her a bunch of things that are exactly the same as what Murdoch would say. And it's a very unnerving, kind of creepy scene. Uh, again, O'Brien doing his best kind of it's- riffraff slash Nosferatu. It's so creepy though because he 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 really nails that you know kind of disgusting enjoyment of living another man's life of living right. Murdoch's yeah. life. Yeah, he he has all of the mem- all of the relevant memories of their relationship and he exploits them and exploits her in a, a sort of gross scene. Uh then we finally get uh you know Murdoch finds his uncle Carl gets a you get a great expository slideshow showing him his life at Shell Beach. Um, I love any time in the film where Murdoch is like, don't you remember, do you remember the sun? Like, 
do you remember daytime at any point yeah. like and he's like ah you're just tired ah you just you're not thinking straight kid and he's like no like when's the last time you remember seeing the sun and and there's all this stuff and and it just kind of keeps going but we get this this nice understanding of of the life that murdoch was supposed to have had uh whose parents were and all of that um and there was of course a fire you know a dash of a dash of pain in his life to to give him some angst uh, but it's a it's a good sequence you know there there is a lot of exposition in this film but i think it's all deftly handled um it doesn't and... feel like it ever grinds to a halt to tell you a story no, no. The engine of this film is is very strong, and it it hums along at a pretty good rate. This is only a hundred minutes long. Like it's not a long film, uh, and to its its benefit, you know, we talked last week about Speed Racer and and Speed Racer being over long, and it it absolutely is. Um, but this film is is very very on point. Uh, I think even the director's cut with its additional you know ten twelve minutes. I don't think it's necessary. Like this movie has all of the pieces that it needs to tell its story. And we're, we're really now sort of rushing, uh, you know, at about, about the halfway mark, we're kind of rushing to the end. Uh, Bumstead is just sort of hanging out with um, Jennifer Connelly's character and they are attempting to track down Murdoch. They find that the prostitute that he had visited earlier in the film, she's now been killed. We know she was killed by the strangers they're thinking maybe it was Murdoch. They don't know for sure, but Bumstead is already kind of, he doesn't, he doesn't. And I like this about William Hurt here. He, he obviously doesn't think that it's Murdoch anymore. Yeah. You know? He, he knows something else is going on. And even if Murdoch is the killer, that there's another layer to this mystery that he can't quite put his finger on. And that's a, a really good classic noir gumshoe thing, right? Uh, Bogart, I think, was really good at having that that feeling, that understanding, right? That, you know, I look like I'm kind of, you know, <laughs> I kind of don't know what's happening, but I really do. And uh, I think that's really cool. Uh, again, hurt doing good work. Um bit more exposition about you know murdoch and his life at shell beach but then it's really kind of on to the, the conclusion right we got to wrap this thing up uh murdoch f i don't have an issue with you know the last chunk of this film but a lot of the reviewers did because in essence once we move into the third act of this film. It's, it's pretty much a big action sequence. Basically Murdoch is being assaulted by various strangers and they are using all of their tuning abilities to, you know, attempt to, to stop him, to bring him down. I think and, it's, it's a fantastic sequence in the film. Um, but it was in 1998 instead of like 2008 when it would have been yeah. really popular <laughs> right i mean we do get some really good practical effects uh the the two the two buildings being slammed together as they're tuning the city and one of the strangers gets caught in between like that's basically just a practical set being moved against each other that works really well yeah. but a lot of the cg in this is pretty weak a lot of the compositing is pretty bad a lot of the lighting's not great 
um, especially the the late game effects of of the strangers themselves, like the alien versions of them. Yeah, they're kind of like just big bugs with teeth, tentacle, and, things. and they're kind of they're tentacle like gooey tentacle things with teeth, and they're they're really they look bad, um, real bad. <laughs> uh, the first one, the first one that pops out of the head is 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 good. Like it's just very subtle, but when we actually see them in like their full version. Uh, it's it's a pretty weak effect. Uh, definitely feels like CG produced in the late '90s, you know, pre-Matrix anyway. And so as they're tuning the city in an attempt to to trap Murdoch or grab Murdoch, um, we get a, a couple of neat action sequences. But then finally, bump you know they capture Murdoch. Bumstead grabs him, and and they take him to jail. So Bumstead gets to interview him. He shows off his telepathic abilities to Bumstead's amazement. And then we get a, a really, I think, a really lovely scene. You know, the, the fairly typical talking through the the telephone scene in jail. Uh, Murdoch sort of connects with her and, and he tells her, like, you know, we were never together. Like, one of the cool things, you know, as, as we've been talking about this idea of identity and, and what makes you who you are... You know, he says, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. We've only known each other a couple of days. They gave you these memories. You, you don't know me. And she's like, but I feel like I do. Yeah. And he's like, I, I kind of feel like I know you too. And again, it's sort of getting to this idea, or, or, you know, do we love someone because of our memories of them and with them? Or do we love someone because of this undefinable thing, this this quality that we can't express? And, and so this, this moment sort of plays that out and he shatters the glass between them with his tuning ability. And then, you know, they get a, a passionate kiss. And it's but all, I, it's I, very nice the way that plays out. That could have been very cheesy and it ends up being kind of nice. Yeah. I, I think it's a good moment in the film and one that we need, because at this point, Murdoch and, and his wife have been basically antagonists right like he doesn't know her so he hasn't really trusted her they've had a few nice moments but no real true connection and this is really where i think more than anything murdoch decides i, I do care for this person even though i don't have all of the memories associated with them to make me care i've me just as a person i have developed feelings for her and and that gets expressed there, which is is really cool. I think it's it's nicely played. It's subtle, but it's it's to the point, and and also you know really well acted on the part of Rufus Sewell. Then I guess we could get uh, what would we call this uh, assault on precinct Bumstead? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, basically, the strangers show up and and they want Murdoch, and they know he's at the jail. One thing I do like about the film is that the strangers are not omniscient. Yeah. Um, I think it's very good at establishing that the strangers, while incredibly powerful and they do run this city, they are not all-knowing. They can't look into the minds and the places of what everybody's doing at any given time, nor can they fully manage the individual lives of every person. Um you know, I guess it's Schreiber in a little while who says, you know, you might be the same character for a long time, but if they decide that you're the one that they want for this new narrative, they'll, you know, change your memories and then you won't be that person anymore. Which, like, as a writer, I kind of love that entire setup. That 
it's you're playing with setup. these people like characters. Um, mm-hmm. That is that's perfect because you do kind of, as a writer, cycle through these archetypes and these these ideas that you return to and it seems like the strangers are kind of doing the same thing so i low-key identify yeah you just kind of smash things together and and see what you get out of it you know i you know stephen king very famously says that he sort of spins up the world puts the characters in and then lets them make the decisions you know he follows their decision making process and in some ways it seems like you know this very much is the genesis of of writerly creation as you are you know, spooling up your world, you have your your labyrinth, your maze that you can drop your mice into, and then occasionally you mix it up to see if the mice come up with something new. And and that's really all the strangers are doing in the hopes of extending their race. Because that's ultimately what Schreiber tells us, is that they're dying, right? These are the last of them, whatever that may be. And they feel that experimenting on us, coming to understand you know, our soul, what gives us our spark of life, that that will be able to extend their species. But it's ill-defined, right? They don't have a game plan per se, but this is the best shot that they feel that they've got to take. And then really the largest exposition dump in the movie comes between uh, Schreiber, Murdoch, and Bumstead. Uh, Schreiber attempts to force Murdoch to inject a set of memories into his head. Murdoch refuses. Obviously, he feels that that could be another form of manipulation. And then they decide to go on a trip to Shell Beach. And while they're in the car, this is where, you know, Schreiber sort of lays everything out. Um, Basically, it's the exact same explanation of who the strangers were that we got over the opening you know, the voiceover narration that kicked off the theatrical version of the film. Mm -hmm. And that's why the director's cut excludes it because the film tells you all of that stuff in due course. It's just, you don't need to know that at the beginning. And I really appreciate a film that does not believe I have to know absolutely everything right off the bat. Right. I, I'm kind of tired of that. Like I said, you know, everything just stops and then you're given all of this information and then you know modern films tend to pick up and they just don't stop until they're over um but they right. have to be front loaded with all of this this exposition and i i kind of hate that <laughs> yeah it's it's sort of i mean part of the fun of watching a complex you know sort of interesting scientific or or um, you know, philosophical film, you know, that has neat ideas and is watching them unspool, right? And not necessarily needing to have every bit of information at the start. You know, it's it's what can make something like 2001 kind of impenetrable, right? Because 2001 doesn't open up and say, it is the year 2257. Yeah. Humans have colonized the moon. You know, like <laughs> it doesn't do that. It's just like, I'm going to show you those things. And Watching a movie like that is is sometimes challenging. It can be difficult, but it's also incredibly rewarding as you, you know, sort of figure it out with the characters. And I think Proyas is especially good at that. Um, you know, one thing I think is unassailable, even in his bad films, is that Proyas as a visual storyteller is very, very good at what he does. Right? Unfortunately, the last few films he's made, the stories that he's been asked to tell have been not garbage so 
but he still tells those stories with incredible skill. And I think that the seeds of his ability to do that are very, very visible in this movie. Um, it's, it's high shot count, uh, the way that he intersperses images to reinforce an idea being discussed in, in really subtle ways. It's techniques that we now kind of accept as normal, but in 1998, they were still kind of fresh and still people working them out. Um, you know, I think this movie does owe a little bit to seven in terms of its approach. Don't we that, all? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's hard to understate how important that film was in the you know development of several branches of cinema. Um, but anything having to do with noir owes something, you know, post post seven owes something to seven because seven in many ways brought that genre to the mainstream again. And, and did so beautifully and, and sort of justified the visuals that we would find in movies like Dark City and, and even The Crow, which came a little bit before Seven, but still. Um, so Schreiber kind of lays things out, tells them that, you know, Shell Beach, the place they're looking for, doesn't really exist, that all of your memories are fake. Everything that you know is a lie. It doesn't matter who you are. None of this makes any difference. It's very much this sort of nihilistic viewpoint because he's been operating in this for who knows how long. He's seen these things unravel. He's played God um, and enjoyed it a little bit. And so, you know, watching these two men process this information, basically Bumstead and, and Murdoch, Bumstead takes it with this like quiet reservation, like, huh, okay. And then Murdoch's just pissed. He's just yeah. angry. He's like, how could you do this? This is injustice. And and Bumstead is just still skeptical, right? He's just skeptic to the very end, but obviously willing to go along for the ride. Uh, and here we get probably one of my favorite shots of the film. It's the most overtly expressionist because they've it almost feels like they've kind of reached the outer edge of the city, the place of the city where nobody basically ever goes. And so everything kind of jacked up, like as they're approaching this, the, the, the hallway is kind of, you know, tilted in that German expressionist 32 degree angle or whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's like the, the strangers never worry about tuning this part of the city. So it's a little jacked, <laughs> you know, it's just a little bit off it's the outskirts. and uh, they approach and it looks like there's going to be like this sunshine and it's just an advertisement for Shell Beach, right? The the last bit of artifice and and they just can't believe it it's so deflating it's such a fantastic moment in the film because it's like oh we're gonna find it and then no there's nothing there's just another advertisement for a place that doesn't i remember exist. audibly gasping like are you kidding me yeah this yeah, is it's just brutal because you just you feel like uh, you feel like the characters are going to. You feel like the characters are going to, to get this final moment of understanding, and they are. But it's not it the understanding not, we want. <laughs> it's not the understanding that they want, and this is where the film goes full on, hundred percent sci-fi, no questions, because this is a spaceship. They are on a space station. They are not on Earth. They are in space. That that long pan down at the beginning of the film that you thought was just the transition from the night sky to the city. Nope. nope. 
you are in space. So they he uses his tuning ability to blow out the wall, and it is just open space with some kind of shielding in between it. They get into a fight, and unfortunately, Bumstead. And this is the only narrative choice in the film that I don't like. I understand why they make it, because Bumstead couldn't survive with this yeah. information, right? He would he would have become Walensky with this information. He's too... We do get that great shot of his shoe where, like, we find out that he's kind of let things slip since this has started, right? Because his shoe was untied, and the yeah. cop points it out, and he's like, hey, you know, your, your shoe's it's untied. It's like the first thing. <laughs> it's like the first thing to begin to unravel, right? Like, he's falling apart. So I, I makes it makes sense that Bumstead would, would sacrifice himself to, to sort of help the others because he wouldn't be able to contemplate this but really i think they do it because we need to see the city yeah and and proyas is not one to have an unjustified camera move that doesn't have something tied to it from a character point of view and that so is a Bumstead, really wonderful character moment i mean his reaction is is, yeah. is fabulous when he sees the sprawl of the city and what it actually is Right, because as he floats away and, and he's, you know, sort of ejected into space, he sees this giant disc in, in in space, and it is the rat maze from Schreiber's office, right? Schreiber's office is a recreation of the spiral maze that all of these humans are trapped in. And what Belinsky said was, you know, the circles that he would travel in in the world. Because um, I uh, one thing I've noticed... A couple times rewatching it recently is uh, they talk about the streets, and the streets are all just letters, mm-hmm. right? There are no street names, just uh, Street C, Street B, Street M, um, you know, which contributes even more to this not being a real place. It's not tied to anything, right? Streets are named after people and locations and history, but this place has none of that. It's just an amalgam of everything, and it's just all kind of smashed together. And, you know, again, it's it's a, a great example of production design, but also just the thinking through from the top down of an entire world and how it functions and, and really kind of getting it all right, right, which Dark City does. Uh, so Murdoch collapses after the experience with Bumstead and they take him down to their lair, right, the, the place with the clock. And they've decided that... Or Schreiber kind of halfway convinces them, really, right, that he is the next step of human evolution, that the experiment that they've been running, Murdoch, is potentially the product of that experiment. All they really need to do is inject their memories into him, and then they will be able to live on as a species in this new form. Because he can tune just like they can, so they won't lose their abilities, but they, he will have the, the sum total knowledge of their species. Um, which, I love this. I think this is really interesting. It, it feels cavalier and, and, a, and, and sort of off the wall for these very stoic people to make this big move. But at the same time, you know, it's easy to forget that the strangers are desperate, right? They're operating out of desperation. And the desperation becomes more apparent as the film goes on. They become desperate. Yeah, like they they really don't know what else they can do. And so uh, Schreiber is asked to administer the memories and he takes this moment to 
basically inject him with the thing he tried to inject him with before and and give him all of his memories but these memories he has inserted himself into them and basically gives him a lifetime of memories of training murdoch on how to use the aliens tuning abilities right and i love this sequence one because it uses that uh, the the memory sequence right so it's lots of rapid cuts everything's kind of fuzzed out and and really we just get to see Kiefer Sutherland as like 15 different people yeah. <laughs> which is great we get teacher Kiefer Sutherland mailman <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland milkman uh, milkman <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland fireman Kiefer Sutherland and it's just it's such a great sequence but he is he is educating him in these memories into basically how he can defeat them and it's it's just really really well done and at this point in the film right before we move into the climactic battle it's just this moment of incredible catharsis right like oh i get it now finally our hero can be an actual hero right you know he's not going to be fumbling along anymore and i also like that it's a bit of a dodge because you feel like oh he knows who he is now but that's not really where the movie's going with this it's literally just an information and skills dump right you know it's it's neo saying i know jujitsu you know it's like like that's all it is here and it's it's really effectively done but i also love that proyas is very careful to show the complete dismantling of everything the strangers have tried to do Uh, the memory tube or the memory vial that has all of their collective memories in it gets destroyed right so that piece of it is gone and then our hero murdoch can now tune like they can tune can control their their world engine whatever it is that they use to shape the world of the the space station and he just starts wiping the floor with all these strangers so you know proyas is is giving us all the information we need to in essence understand that he's wiping these guys out right they're done after this there is no more that are going to be coming and he's going to be in full control and I don't know if that's always a good thing. There's the one shot of Sewell, I guess right after he flings like the first group of strangers, it cuts back to him. And, you know, he's doing the like crazy eyed looking down, but looking up at the same time kind of face, mm-hmm. you know, the the Jack Torrance, if you will. <laughs> and, and he's menacing there, right? Because... You know, the other part of the the Plato allegory, you know, the cave allegory, is the guy who has been exposed to the fact that the cave isn't reality, but then chooses to lord that information over others and become like the new the new purveyor of that information yeah. and basically like hold it for themselves is is also bad. Like that's bad too. Um, better than the cave. And, and not knowing at all, but still not great. And I almost get the feeling that Proyas is like, maybe it's not good that this is the only guy that knows what's going on. And hopefully it won't stay that way, I guess. But um, but so in any case, the, the final sequence of the film really turns into a telekinetic battle between Murdoch and Mr. Book. And it's pretty big. Uh, there's a lot of CG that also is problematic Mm. um but also just a lot of cool lighting effects like you can tell they're doing a lot practically uh wasn't 
completely reliant upon the CG special effects here, but still probably more than he should have been <laughs> because this is 1998 and uh, it's it's not awesome. Um, but basically, they they fly up into the sky, uh, you know, Dragon Ball Z style, and just kind of go at each other. And and Murdoch wins. Like he he is successful at defeating all of the strangers and taking them down. And uh, Schreiber is is elated. He's like, "You did it! Finally, we're free." And uh, then Murdoch begins remaking the world in the image that he's always wanted. So we see water flood out around the space station. So that there is kind of an external part, you know, there's the city and something else. And in essence, the end of the film is him sort of creating Shell Beach. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, the place that they've only seen in advertisements, the place where Bumstead died, where we felt this final loss and sense of, oh, there's nowhere to go. He builds that place. He creates an ocean. He creates land, a, a lighthouse, a bus line to Shell Beach. And then, uh, you know, he decides to go there for himself. And of course, Jennifer Connelly has been, isn't she, uh, she's a ticket taker at a movie theater. Yeah. Isn't she? Yeah. yeah. Where they're showing um, Book of Dreams instead of the yeah. Book of Evil. Book of Evil, it's Book of Dreams, right? No more evil, now it's just the dreams. Um, and then one final sort of interesting moment between Mr. Hand and Mr. Murdoch. Which I really love this because it's it's kind of the the opposite, the other, right? Because Hand is the Murdoch that he was supposed to be. Yeah. Right. Hand is is the Murdoch that they were attempting to create. He is the monster. Whereas, he's the monster. Whereas the Murdoch that we've, you know, come to know is this other thing entirely. And and Sewell basically tells him, like, if you were looking to understand what makes a person human going into their mind was the wrong place to look. And so the movie kind of plants a very interesting philosophical flag in in identity and creation of the self and what it means to find meaning in life. And, you know, the implication, even though it's not stated, is that, you know, your humanity is this other thing. It comes from your heart, from, you know, the the thing that defines you and then we transition almost immediately into a new first meeting with jennifer connelly uh, in this case her name is anna now i think yes and it's beautiful and right and this is meant to parallel you know we we find out from a conversation between her and mr hand that they had met at this you know overlook in the city you know this bridge overlook which is I, I think is supposed to be reminiscent of you know the famous bench sequence from manhattan it, it looks very like that they're kind of evoking that you know sitting on the bench overlooking the city imagery but here they're building a new start to their relationship and so the world is beautiful he spins the city he actually spins it on its axis so that it is now facing whatever sun and whatever solar system they're in so there is actually sunlight and, uh, and he gets to, to meet this woman of his dreams uh, again for the first time and craft a new you know, start to their relationship. And there's a little bit of tragedy yeah. to it because um, in addition to being given like all that real cool powers and abilities, um, Schreiber did give him back his memories of his wife. So then 
he has True. lost her yeah. again. Right. He has to to rebuild that relationship with her. And, and they've really switched positions where she doesn't have any memory of their relationship, but maybe feels like she likes him, whereas he now has all the memories and has to, to deal with a person that doesn't know him as he knows her. And, and they have to sort of start fresh, which is really what the ending of the film is all about, is, is a new start, a fresh start. And, and it's executed brilliantly. Boy, is it ever. And, and so that closes us out. And, and you know, again, it's, it's a, a near-perfect film. Uh, I think it has solid drama, great acting, beautiful production design like absolutely stellar production design still holds up to this day special effects a eh, little dicey at times but certainly nothing that would make the film unwatchable by any stretch um but i i think you know for me this is one that you know ranks among my favorite films of all time and despite the fact that it didn't do you know specifically well at the box office i think I think most people who have encountered this film feel positively about it because it truly is a fascinating one to watch. And and really, you know, The Crow and Dark City are the reason why every time Alex Preuss does something, I'm still going to show up because you just never know. Like, the guy is... He's, Whatever it is, you're not going to forget it anytime soon. No, no. and And he must... You know, every time, and even in, in like his misses, right? Like Gods of Egypt, which is a pretty hard miss. Um, <laughs> there are moments of, of awesome in that movie. Like there are things in it that are really interesting looking. But just on this core basic level, it just fails yeah. on, a, on some pretty significant things. And some of them, maybe they weren't his fault. Maybe he was, you know, forced into using certain actors to sell the project. I mean, that kind of stuff happens in Hollywood all the time. And it's frustrating for even well-established and successful directors to deal with and navigate i believe in alex price i think he can i think he can turn it around yeah i think i think that's my my 2021 slogan i believe in alex price <laughs> um he gets my vote definitely um so were there any other you know components of the film i mean i think we've hit most of it uh we didn't really talk about the music much uh I think the music for this is is very serviceable. Uh, I'm not going to say that it's a super memorable score. There are a couple of interesting sort of... It feels a bit industrial. It, it's not really an orchestral score, even though it's produced in that fashion. But it feels kind of driving at times. I guess the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. You know, like that's kind of like the core beat of it um, that drives the whole thing. And... Um, and it certainly works, but I'm not going to say that it's incredible. Um, but it's uh, Trevor Jones who does it and who's got an incredibly long career. He's done all kinds of movies. I like his soundtracks. Um, yeah, like I said, it's not bad. It's it's not one that I find myself drawn to listen to. Um, you know, it doesn't have like those, those bombastic themes that I tend to hold on to uh, in a film. But he's certainly done some work that has. Uh, one of my favorite soundtracks of all time is the last of the Mohican soundtracks, and, and, and that was Jones. Uh, one of my um, favorite soundtracks and, of all uh, time is the Labyrinth, and he did that one and too. And he did that one too. Yep, he was he was the Labyrinth guy. 
Um, you know, but he's he's had some really good ones. He's worked with Stephen Norrington. He did the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen soundtrack, which is also okay. Uh, again, that film is problematic in its own way, but the the score was pretty solid. Um, so from a music standpoint, I, I certainly think there's there's nothing about the music that you would find jarring or grating or that would take you out of the, the experience. And I think the the final battle sequence has some some pretty awesome stuff in it. Uh, I for agree. Sure. I agree. But you know, overall, there this is a film that I, I find hard to to criticize much of it. Again, I, I don't like what happens to Bumstead, but mostly because I I like Bumstead a lot as a character. It makes perfect sense. I think it it's it's tonally consistent with the film, but um, you know, there's a piece of me that would would have wanted that character to remain in that world. But I think the ending really is about fresh starts, new possibilities, and and this guy sort of being able to reshape a new world, not just for himself but for everyone, and and having another person like Bumstead who kind of knows what's up. I, I don't know if that would work. Uh, you know, we've still got Schreiber running around, but Schreiber seems more than happy to, you know, sycophantically just sort of help out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think he's going to be running through the streets being like, everything's a lie! You know, nothing like that, but uh, maybe, who knows. But I think it's it's a great script from from Goyer and and his collaborators. I feel a lot of Goyer in this script. It's It's got some of his hallmarks, a little bit weird um some of his characters yeah maybe they don't a hundred percent land but honestly in terms of stuff that david s goyer has worked on i think this is 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 a really strong piece um you know usually with goyer i've got a lot of, of drawbacks you know there's always things about his stuff that i like but then there's other things that i don't um you know i, I like man of steel <sighs> i get i get <laughs> I get what they were trying to do with Man of Steel. They wanted to make him a complex, interesting, potentially frightening character. But he right? is what, if, what if Superman was dangerous? No. But mm -mm, it just didn't work because Superman isn't any of those things. Like I, I completely it, understand what they were trying to do, but it didn't land. Yeah, it was dumb and um, it was bad. <laughs> whereas as this, I think it's sort of expresses a lot of the things that Goyer is interested in these, these deeper philosophical questions at the heart of, of films, which I think Goyer generally does have an interest in answering, but then actually gets the chance to do something cool with them. Whereas a lot of the other kind of like big budget quote unquote filmmaking that David Goyer has done since this, I don't think he always gets the chance to be in control of those things. Um, definitely not the Snyder era of uh, superhero filmmaking. But one thing I will say, and it's I guess it's his really most recent credit, is I really like Terminator Dark Fate. I know a lot of people hated that movie, and I completely understand why. Uh, there's certainly things about it to hate. It's mostly just a retread of really Terminator 1 with some Terminator 2 dashes thrown in. But I liked Terminator Dark Fate. Uh, I like Mackenzie Davis a lot. I think she was really good. I thought Sarah Connor was underused, but still pretty cool. And again, saying it's like the best of these more recent Terminator movies doesn't really mean anything. That's, that's like saying um, it's the best turd in the bowl. Uh, yeah. Um, 
but I found it very watchable and, and you know, when I watched it with my family, cause we'd kind of gone through the Terminator films one and two, at least um, I was kind of holding off on three cause it's a bit silly, but um, you know, we all really enjoyed it. That was pretty good. And, and he was pretty involved with the script on that. And I, I think it, most of it lands pretty well. So yeah, uh, like I said, I'm not a Goyer fanboy or anything, but I, I do, you know, I, I do like a lot of what he's written, but I think this may be the thing that I'm, that I have the least number of reservations about saying, yeah, I recommend this, right? Where I can just say, yes, no, this is very good. And I realized that he was just a co-writer. He didn't write the whole thing, but I think he had more to do with the actual final construction of the script than uh, would probably be indicated by the crediting system. But yeah, uh, all right. Well, let's let's kind of move into our, our last phase here with our one thing. So again, this is a film that we both sort of universally love. The critics generally enjoyed it too, especially some very important critics. But what is one thing that we could change about this particular project a, that might have pushed it to the mainstream? A bigger effects budget. Definitely. Yeah, this movie was made for less than $30 million. This is insane. Yeah, it doesn't... The, this movie looks too good to have been made for that money in that time frame. Again, this is a year... This is a year before The Matrix. <laughs> Right. Like, and I, you know, I hate that we continue to use the matrix as this, this bar, but it truly did. It was a big deal. <laughs> everything. Um, you know, and the matrix had a $63 million budget, like double the budget of this film. And apart from that bad CGI, I would put dark city next to the matrix in terms of visual quality all day long. Uh, the Matrix is has more spectacle, right? Like there's no build, you know, sides of buildings exploding with helicopters or anything in Dark City. But in terms of just <laughs> what you see on screen, <laughs> um, it's very impressive. Like it's it's a it's a good looking movie. It it plants a flag in a very specific kind of visual style, and then it runs with it and lands it. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. A bigger special effects budget, even just another five to ten million dollars on the budget of this movie, I think, yeah. would have been a very different story. Yeah. Because um, they made it work. Um, and again, every every sh there are no exteriors in that movie, save for the last shot of the film on the beach. Nothing. Everything was shot in a studio, <clears throat> which. It's so it perfect for the tone of the film, though. <laughs> it's perfect for the tone of the film, and it still doesn't look like it. Yeah. Like, some of those outdoor shots don't look like they were shot in the studio, but they absolutely were. To this day, though, Wolski prefers studio shooting to outdoor shooting. Uh, apparently, that was one of the things on The Martian that they were figuring out pretty early was how much they were actually going to shoot, like, out in the desert and how much they were going to shoot in the studio. And he pushed for studio Let's let's shoot somewhere where we can control all this stuff. We can bring in dirt. Dirt's fine. But let's shoot where we can control everything else. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, as far as mine, this was, a, this was a really tough one for me to come up with a thing to make it better. And so I really tried to think more about, like, well, what would help this film connect with audiences better? 
And the only thing I could really come up with is, is a little bit of restructuring. Not of the major plot beats, but of that, that sort of more engaged, turn it into basically a little bit more of an action film. Um, Cause it's not really one of those. It's not really an action movie. There are some action sequences. There are actiony things that happen, but it's, it's not a fast moving film. And if you go back and watch the crow, the crow's kind of in the same boat. There are a couple of really good action sequences, but they're really far apart and they tend to be very short and punctual. Like Proyas is not one for like extended action sequences without purpose. And I appreciate that. That's a good thing. But I think this movie could have done a bit more with um, with action, right? Like, and this is a terrible idea, but I'll throw it out there because it's really the only one I can think of. But like, you know, say as Bumstead is getting pulled into this world, he gets into, you know, a gunfight with a group of strangers, right? Or something like that. Something that, that you know, sort of spices up the, the first act or the second act of the film which are very, you know, talky. Like, I think the talking is important. It's what's helping us understand the characters. But, you know, I think in terms of connecting with that that more sort of, like, typical, grounded, you know, every day I'm going to go to the movies kind of person, some stuff like that might have helped. Again, I don't think it would make the movie better, but it could have made it a bit more accessible to people. I can agree um, with that. You know, I, I think that that's that could be one thing because Proyas is really good in action. Um, you know, even iRobot has some some really good action. There's that one sequence as he's like spinning on mm-hmm. the, the pole and the camera's like tracking him 360 around it. Really cool looking stuff. Uh, there is one 360 tracking shot in this one too, but it's when he's in a phone booth. I know. <laughs> he's in a phone booth looking through the phone book really quickly and the camera is just like spinning around him in 360 I was kind of laughing like, when I was watching that because I was like, whoa. Uh, <laughs> this is yeah, a crazy I mean, it's something book. that, again, we would we would see in the Matrix in, a, in a, about a year, but that's when he's like dodging bullets in slow motion. But here he's like thumbing quickly through the phone book to try and find a name you know it's like okay well yeah we could probably use a little bit more traditional action in this um to to sort of bring things home but but that's really all i can think of otherwise i I think it's it's darn near a perfect film especially if you have any appreciation for detective noir at all you know if you've ever watched a, a you know noir movie even if it's like the you know, the big sleep from the seventies with Elliot Gould in it or whatever. Like, even if you've ever watched anything like that and been like, Oh, detectives are awesome. This movie has so much cool stuff in it for you. Yeah. Um, like I said, and, and Proyas in general, like the crow and dark city are, are pretty unequivocal recommendations across the board. And even some of his later work, you know, even I robot, there's some things in there that you could grab onto that are pretty good. And regardless of how the word, the story's worked out or, or whatever, like they're directed very well. Proyas doesn't really do a bad job in that regard. All right. So what would you say is your failure piece score for this one? Where are we at? I'm fully Dark transparent. City. This is a 100 for me. I wouldn't actually change anything about this movie except to give it no. more money so that Alex Proyas could do more. Right. Dark City 2. Yeah. 2023. No. Do it. Um, <laughs> do it. <laughs> Bring Rufus Sewell back. He's not busy. <laughs> um, yeah. No, th- 
for me too, this is a, a 100%. Like this is, I cannot recommend this film highly enough. And it's a movie that I'm, I'm going to bet a lot of people have not seen. Um, you know, cause unless you're really trucking in, in sort of movie cinephile uh, circles, this movie doesn't come up a ton in conversation. Um, you know, it doesn't have any super recognizable stars that have, uh, you know, gone on to later success. Jennifer Connelly, of course, but, but, you know, nobody, you know, this isn't like a, a hidden gem from early in somebody's career that you can go back and find if you're getting into them as an actor or actress or, or what have you, but breathtakingly good production design and cinematography, solid performances, interesting story, Kiefer Sutherland with a weird eye prosthetic, like, I just don't know what else you can ask for. I mean, it just seems like a perfect storm of awesome to me. Yeah. Yeah, so 100% full recommend. Dig this one up and find it as soon as you can. Uh, as I said, there there is a director's cut Blu-ray that came out 2012-ish, 2013 maybe. Uh, maybe a little bit later than that, now that I think about it. And that is still pretty widely available. Um, the director's cut I don't think is essential. Um, there are definitely things about it I prefer better, no opening narration being the biggest one, but uh, even if you can only get a hold of the theatrical edition of this film, I think it is, is well worth a watch. Uh, it's a, a fantastic piece of, of late 1990s filmmaking, and, uh, and really one of the culminating projects of the 90s, right? A whole bunch of people in the 1990s saying, what is this world about? Who am I? What am I doing here? Why is the world so so screwed up and stupid? Right? I mean, because like this is Dark City, 13th Floor, which is another film we'll probably talk about at some point. Got to get our Craig Bierko on. Um, 13th Floor, The Matrix, Fight Club, uh, all of those movies in this two-year period. And they're all asking the same basic questions about life. And I love it. Just love it. I do as well. All right. So where, as we wrap up, can you be found on the social medias? I can be found on Twitter at Baskinator. Nice. And I can be also found on Twitter as well, at TBaskin. Uh, and then, of course, as a group, our, our Twitter handle is at FPsTheater at Twitter. And if you want to get a hold of us in the uh, email form, you can get us at Gmail at FailurePiece at gmail.com. Uh, all right, so we will be back next week with a, another maybe masterpiece, maybe failure piece. I guess we'll find out when we get there. Uh, but as always, remember, you can't be a failure if somebody loves you. And we love you just like we love Dark City. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>